Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Friday night. Welcome to Tone Talk with Mark Uzanski and Dave Friedman. Tonight's special guest is Steve Ferris. Steve is a uh, amazing guitar player, musician, um, has been in some incredible bands, Mr. Mister, uh, being one of them, and has played with uh, some great, great musicians and bands. Um, how are you, Steve? I'm good. How are you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. And yeah. Dave, what's going on with you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm just, uh, you know, end of the work day, Friday. Yeah. <laughs> Sitting here doing a show. <laughs> that... Dave, are you, still, are you still in Hollywood, man, that area? Yeah, North Hollywood. Yep. Yeah, right. Yeah, still, yeah. still around. I'm over across from Mates Rehearsal Studios, which you probably Oh, know. Jesus I'm... Christ, Mates, man. Yep, yep. still there. It's back for us, Mark, you know. Oh, yeah? How long ago was that? I go way back a long ways, man. Yeah, that's so, what I understand. You had your stuff we stored. Were, all the bodies are buried. So. Yeah, you had good. your stuff stored at Andy Brower's from way back, as long, I think, as long as I was there, from the time I was a pup. You know, I was wondering, I was trying to think, is that the first place I met you, man, was, was Brower? Was that the connection? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I went to, start working at Andy's in 1988. Okay. So, and your stuff was there from then. Yeah, that's about when, probably, from then yeah. on. Yeah. Right. Yes, I remember your Dumble. Yeah, that Dumble, man. Isn't that a crazy thing, man? Jim That's Kelly. serial number 75. I remember when I had Howard make that. Well, Howard, Alexander, Dumble. But anyway, mm -hmm. I had to make that thing, and uh, I did all the Mr. Mister stuff. Well, that was one of the main amps with that, all that era. And that amp I sold. Actually, Andy helped me sell it through eBay a long time ago. Yeah. And those amps were going up in, remember, up in money. And yeah. God, it was so crazy that I thought we were getting $15,000, which is a lot of money for an amp you paid you know, $1,700 for. Yeah. I have a copy of something. Actually, it's on my computer that somebody sent me. It's being resold or was, and it, it was listed for $100,000. Yeah, $125,000. Yeah, you wow. wish you would have held up to that, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, it's crazy, but there it is. So it talks about Steve first. It shows my Anvil flight case with my name still on it. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, man, I should have waited a little longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely should have. <laughs> it's like, you know, like you I just question it. That's like all the Les Pauls, the old Les Pauls and old Strats you didn't buy back in the, yeah. you know, yeah. late 60s yeah. when they were like, you know, nothing, you know, but anyway. That's so cool. So, so how did, you, now that you brought up the story of having Dumble build you the amp, I'd love to just, let's, let's go down that path. How, how did that happen? Man, listen, I go back with Dumble really early because... I uh, I moved to LA in 1979, and I had at that point, I think I had a polytone amp. I was like playing jazz, and I had my L5, a Gibson L5, a polytone. I had a black 59 strap that I bought in Des Moines, Iowa. That's actually a story if you want to hear it. I guess stories are what we're doing, right? Yeah. But this black strap, and I was playing. I, I lived in Iowa City, and I was playing in bar bands and stuff. And I remember going in to play one week at some bar in, in Des Moines and I went into Ace Music there and in the window they had a guitar a 59 strap for sale and they had it listed at 500 bucks 59 black original 500 bucks anyway and I went in and of course the craziest thing about the story is that I didn't buy it for 500 bucks back then mind you this is like 1976 but a month later I came back to play the same gig and they had now they had a price tag of I went in and wait a minute I went in and offered them $400 they wouldn't take it and I walked away yeah. I came back a month later and they had it for sale again. Now they had a $400 price tag on it. And I, I dickered with them until I got it for 325 and a new strap and a cord. 
And that guitar was a, like the original Black 59. I took that to LA. And that's what I had when I first got to LA. And and the uh, 68 L5. And I also had a 1959 ES355. And uh, and anyway, doing gigs and stuff. I was doing a gig out at a place in Woodland Hills. God, I'm trying to think of the name of that place. It's been long gone. It was over on Ventura out there. But I. I did that gig, and we stopped back at the Flying Jib. If you, does that name ever ring a bell to you at all, Dave? Flying no, Jib back in the day. But yeah. back, back, all the Muso guys used to play there in the early '80s. And I stopped, and I was just dumb enough, Nebraska enough, to think if I rolled up my windows, they can't steal the guitar, right? So anyway, my guitar got broken into, and both those guitars, the '59s, both got stolen. So at that point, I didn't have enough money to even buy another guitar. And I was borrowing money to, I mean, borrowing guitars to do gigs and all that stuff. I'd go do gigs with borrowed guitars. But I did, was able to get a loan and go out and buy some better gear. And that's when I went to Dumble. I tried his amps out that were suede covered, remember? Yeah. I played it, and Lukather had bought one. And I had played on his, and I remember Lando. This was at Leeds, back at Leeds, right? Yes. Lando was playing. Yeah, we were all kind of talking about it. I thought, what the hell, I'll, I'll, I'll buy one. And I said, I told Howard, I said, I don't want the suede, man. I can't have the suede. I'd also bought a Jim Kelly. And so I wanted him to make like the Tolex that was, you know, Fender looking Tolex, the old Tolex, which he did. And I remember I had to pay him 1750 bucks. And silly enough, I gave him all the money up front. And of course, that's never a great idea with anybody. So it took a long time to get that amp. And I finally did. And that was about the time I think my sound really changed, to be honest with you. I had a, I had a, Jim Kelly um, and a and a Dumble, and I was using a you know a CU1 chorus that Rivera had modified that trip that was always being done back then. Yep, always. The I had that and a, and a Goodrich volume pedal, man, and that was kind of the rig then, and that changed a lot of things for me. The, the sound was really happening, the stereo chorus sound and all that. And uh, anyway, that was that was a major thing. But here's what happened with the Dumble amp to get it to where it finally became the amp that I started recording with. He used to he used to work out of the alley. Dave, is the alley still even going? I don't know. The alley, um, well, the the people that ran it died. Um, okay. Um, and um, then it was they were trying to restore it, and then some of the pe crazy people that were living in the <laughs> stuff. You know what I'm talking about, right? I know exactly what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, uh, they evidently took a lot of stuff out of it when they, when they died. So. Um, you know, then I see the buildings for sale now. So yeah. Oh wow, that was kind of the earthy sort of uh, era. Oh, Jackson Brown, early '70s, really. Wouldn't you say Little Feet? It yeah. was the kind of the era that they also used to her. It was kind of hippie esque and kind of really macrame, if you know what I mean. Never changed. But, yeah, and and Dumble had a little space rented there because he moved down from Los Cruces or somewhere. I don't know where he came from, but he moved down. They had a little shop, and I used to sit in there with Howard, man and have him tweak my amps. This became a famous thing that I used to do with all those guys. Very picky, very picky I am. And anyway, I'd sit there and make them go through all kinds of resistors and stuff, and we'd watch porno and eat sandwiches until uh, <laughs> the second. And, and, wow, and, really? and, and we would, he would try something, he'd fuck around, and I'd say, man, that's, that sounds better than, you know, more dink than donk and blah, blah, blah. Then we'd take it out in the other room, play it a while, and we'd go back and tweak on along. Meanwhile, it's TV going at all times, of course. But anyway... <laughs> Those were uh, those were the Dumble days. Now listen, he's a great, very sweet guy. I don't know what, I don't even know if Dumble's still going. Yeah, I don't know. still okay. around. Good for. Uh, I don't you know. know if he, I don't know if he large... still builds, builds amps though, right? Does he still build? Oh, amps? Yes. 
Yes, he does. Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, Howard always did great. Not for very me. often. Yeah, no. He always did great for me. As a matter of fact, after Mr. Mister made it, and I was kind of like, you know, buying more stuff, I bought a second one from him as a backup, just a head. Uh, but his stuff is so was so individual and so personalized that they never sound. No one never sounded the same as the other one. I mean, he built me one, but it never sounded anything like the other one. I'm not saying it sounded bad. It just they're just really like little artistic pieces, every one of them. Mm. So, but anyway, that's the Dumble thing, man. That's cool. Well, you know, it's funny because your name, Steve, and uh, history on this show started from the very first show that we had. Um, huh. We had Grover Jackson on, and, ah. and Grover talked about the Charvel that he built for you. That was the yeah. same that came from the same uh, piece of wood that yeah. came from Steve Vai's Green Meanie. Yeah. And uh, so we actually talked about that, and he actually huh. talked about that guitar on the first That's show. Good. It was the very first show that we did. So. Um, so we've been talking about having you on the show since like the very first show that we had, which was like two years oh, ago. Oh, wow, man. Yeah. Thanks. That's flat. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You. So, um, that, and that, that, that guitar you're talking about, if I'm not even mistaken, that board built one for Eric Johnson, one for Steve Vai. Uh, I, I have the one and I, I actually think Holdsworth had another one. There were four bodies and they were all like two great guitar players. Huh. Yeah. Here's the story on that from my end i went down and i had a i had another charvel that i'd gotten from grover or whatever but, and it was somebody called charvel at the time you know um and i went down there and, and i was getting a neck from him or whatever and that body was already finished it had the color on it. i remember picking it up out of a cardboard box of bodies there and it was light it was swamp ash and it was really really light and i went ooh what about this one? He said, you can have that one. And then he told me the story about the other bodies that had come out of that board. And that's the guitar that I played on Curie. It's a guitar I toured with Mr. Mister with well, forever. That was, I mean, I didn't play it on everything, but I, I toured with it. It was my main touring guitar back then. It was a great guitar. I still have it. Oh, it went really? through the National Flood and I refurbished it and it came, we, we fixed it up. Yeah. Actually, it doesn't have any pickups in it right now. The, the flood destroyed the pickups, which were custom wound by Seymour Duncan and I actually got a hold of Seymour last year and said it was kind of funny. Just I, I need him rewound sometime. And I haven't got around to it yet. Anyway. Oh wow, man! Because yeah, we had a question from uh, Tony Kennedy. So Tony, thanks for uh, sending in. A, he sent in a bunch of questions for you, and one of them was about the neck. Uh, excuse me, was about the guitar, and uh, he wanted to know if it was true that it was badly damaged in the floods. Yeah. Well, I had you know all my shit was down at Soundcheck uh, in Nashville in 2010. Uh, and I was up here in Nebraska, and you know, I have a condo now. I still have it. I don't live there, but I, I had a condo, and I had so much stuff there. After after having some guitars stolen from me, I used to always make sure I kept some, like at Brower's Dave. I'd keep some yeah. in Cartage. I'd keep some at my house. I had like a steel closet made. That, you know, I just didn't want to separate. I became paranoid about losing guitars because once it happens to you, especially when you don't have any others, it's pretty crazy. So at the point in Nashville, I had just kind of moved to Nebraska from Nashville. And I, I had just put all my shit in one spot in Soundcheck. And a month later, the flood had it underwater for five days. Wow. So all my shit, all my guitars, all my tapes, two-inch tapes to dats to cassettes to board mixes of Mr. Mr. to everything under fucking water for five days. Oh, no. So that was, that was, a, that was a really weird kind of emotional thing, you can imagine. 
but you pull through these things, natural disaster and all that. And to be honest with you, a lot of these guitars and things did pull out of it. Uh, that, that Charvel, we had to reset the, the pins for the Floyd, you know, they, they had to crack the stuff and do some a little woodwork and strengthen it up. And uh, it came back together pretty well. Um, and actually, my old vintage guitars actually came back some of the best. Some of the newer stuff didn't come out so well. I auctioned off a couple of Valley Art Strats. Oddly enough, to a guy I ended up knowing in England bought him, uh, a guy named Michael Caswell, who actually uh, was a great guitar player and got killed in a boating accident a couple years ago. But anyway, that's uh, kind of just other historic, history stories. But, you know, anyway. Yeah, that guitar made it, but it did get it did get fucked up in the flood at first. So. Wow. So when they when they restore a guitar like that, did they uh, did they have to? Is the paint still on it? Did they have to strip it and dry it? I mean, actually, the paint's still on. I had to do some other. My old floor, my old Valley Arts, my original number thirty two, and the one I played most of the solos on those back in those days, and I played on Kiss's record with that one and all that. That one I had to refinish. It, it was fucked. So I just. But I was able to, to go to Mickey McGuire, who was Mike's son. And Mike, Mike had moved to Nashville and was running a custom shop for Gibson. And I was down there, and Mickey became a, a – a, he was doing a lot of finished stuff. And Mickey actually actually refurbished it exactly the color, which was a real custom thing, and it looks exactly the same. I still don't have pickups in that either because the pickups got trashed, but I do have the guitar, and it's playable. You know, so. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that it got messed up, but I'm glad it's still around. Oh, you know. Hey, Dave, we have a super chat, and the question is I actually for you. Do you want to address that? Uh, yeah, so Dave, he asked, uh, with your amp heads and one cab, does it matter which speaker output is used? Um, not with most of the amps. Uh, the Rut series, yes, it has a used first jack, but it says that. The rest doesn't matter. Yeah, so it usually just use the first, right? Uh, which, well, use first on the runs. There's a jack mark to oh. use first. So you use those, but on the other ones, it uh, doesn't matter. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought it said even on my BE100, I thought it said use first. No. Oh, my, my bad. All right, well, thanks, Mark. Thanks for sending that question in. Um, so, Steve... I would love to, I, you know, I did some reading on, on the history and, you know, on your, your background and, uh, you know, your parents were very artistic and you started picking up uh, guitar at an early age. I, I'd love to hear from you um, if you can take us back on how you got into music, how, uh, you know, how you were able to live your dream playing music and then what you're doing now and living in Nebraska. I'd love, love for you to take us through that, if you don't mind. That takes a while, of course. Yeah, no, <laughs> we got we got time, but, you, but I'm sure it'll take us down a you know, bunch of different paths. Was, yeah, my mother was a professional artist in that she had a degree and she was a commercial artist in Chicago before she got married. Meaning, she used to do fashion art when they used to do, uh, you know, women's clothing and you know, and ads and stuff, and she'd draw them and stuff. She oh, was wow. good enough to do that. Okay, and she did art all her life. It became, you know, got married and had kids and lived sort of a domestic life. But we. I grew up with an art studio in the house and all. I, I could draw from the time I was three years old. Um, I have more probably natural talent with drawing. It just I could always draw and I could always paint. And so it was kind of just thought I would. Matter of fact, if, there's paintings behind here that I painted when I was probably in eighth grade, you know. Wow. But um, it was just like that. I was going to do art. And I was always into hunting and wildlife and all that. And I was going to do waterfowl illustration. That's what I grew up doing. 
But I started playing guitar at age nine. And I, well, I, and let me back up because that's going to be the more interesting thing for everybody. The guitar thing, you know, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan when they were there, when they made their debut. I was either in first or second grade, I think first grade. And my older sister, we were at my grandmother's house, and she said, the Beatles are going to be on, the Beatles are going to be on. I'm a little kid, and I'll never forget it, obviously. And here was, she loves you, yeah, yeah. And I mean, the girls are screaming, and just this magical thing was like killing me. See, I'm a six-year-old boy, and I'm like going, what the hell is this, you know? And that was a profound thing on my life, seeing the Beatles and Ed Sullivan. I ha and then I, I didn't play guitar right away. My mother got me into piano lesson. I didn't do that, and blah, blah, blah. But by the time I was in fourth grade, I started taking guitar lessons at a local music store. And I would go down every, you know, I'd walk down after school uh, and uh, I could walk downtown to where the music store was and I'd take my lesson. And, uh, you know, my, my mother pushed me a little bit because. You know, you, you start out like you want to. You're a kid. You're nine years old. And then you're discouraged. You don't want to do it. But my mother said, you got to practice half hour every day. I want to go outside and play basketball and shit, you know, yeah, yeah. and play half hour every day. And I'll tell you what happened is about, you know, four, five, six months into it, this teacher starts. <laughs> he was great, man. I had a guy named Larry Bowles at first. I, I remember him a bit. But then I then he changed. He left. And a guy named John Gary was my guitar teacher. And John was this. Cool kind of 50s guy, his hair kind of slicked back, if I remember. He always had a cigarette hanging out of the mouth, and he was playing a 335, and just kind of this cool cat, you know. And he started teaching me, like, Beatles songs and stuff, or songs that were pop songs, instead of, you know, Merrily We Roll Along or something. And that starts, of course, gaining interest. And I went, and on my my birthday is May 1st. Hey, you can wish me happy birthday a couple days early. But anyway, my birthday is May 1st, and on that year... Um, my dad took me around. He was, they, they decided they'd buy me a real guitar because of that. God, I could show you that freaking guitar. My, it was my mother's. It was a K. A holo, I mean, just an acoustic K that was probably $5 new. I mean, I couldn't fucking play that guitar today if I had to. I mean, it was so hard to play. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? So that was what I was learning on. They wanted to see if I had any interest before they'd buy me a guitar. Then they bought me. We'd go around, and you know, those were the days, man. You could go look at used guitars at a music store. They'd let you take them home and play them for a week. You know, and I had guitars all, and of course, dad had gotten the idea from the music teacher that I, there was a Gibson ES-125 that didn't have a cutaway or anything, it's a hollow body, and it was a three-quarter size, about the size of Les Paul, but a three-quarter scale, and I didn't like it because it didn't have a cutaway, it didn't look rock and roll, you know? Right. And, uh, but finally, somehow, my senses came to me, and, and dad talked me into buying that guitar, so that was my first guitar that was actually a real guitar, and I played that guitar shit i remember taking it to to show off to show and tell at fourth grade and you know you start playing a few rock and roll songs and the the kids are going woo 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 I, you start getting hooked in fourth grade <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like oh, shit this ain't that fucking bad is it so anyway i started doing that kind of stuff and by sixth grade i think i was about sixth grade i think and my my dad had a heath kit hi-fi meaning he you'd, you'd buy these heath kits and build electric electronic stuff back then, you know, self, self done. And he had a built in the, to the wall, a hi-fi with a 15 inch speaker. And, you know, he had a turntable and there was a radio uh, receiver and I scroll through it and I listened to the underground. That was the term back then, the underground station out of Omaha, which was playing album cuts and stuff, not top 40. And I turned to this one thing and it was Jimi Hendrix, like your t-shirt. Yeah. And it was Jimi Hendrix. And I don't remember this day whether it was 
Purple Haze, Foxy Lady, Hey Joe. It was that. It was our experienced album. And I heard this, and I stopped, and I'm staring at this thing. And my sister, older, older by six years, happens to be in the room, and says, "Oh, that's Jimi Hendrix. Do you like Jimi Hendrix?" I said, "This is the most amazing thing I've ever heard." And I listened to two songs, and I was just so like, "What is this?" I mean, and I'll tell you what. That moment also doesn't resonate with a lot of younger guitar players, because sometimes I've even heard young guys say, "Oh, Hendrix is this or that." I'd say. You don't understand. Nobody ever made a fucking guitar sound anything like that before he did. I mean, nothing like that. Like an alien. You all learn from that, and there's a million guitar players that make them stream and make them do things. But that shit was like, what? It's so powerful. And I thought that sword was wheeled so swiftly through me. That's the sword I wanted to learn to carry myself. I wanted to be able to have that effect on people too. I wanted to be able to blow them away with that kind of moment. And that was. In the, the next profound moment. So you stop me if I'm rambling because I tend to do. No, that. no, it's awesome. That's fine. Okay, so then, like about sixth grade, I try to put bands together with, you know, we didn't even know what to do. We're just trying. We don't know if one guy plays chords or one guy, you know. But I remember we put the ba- together a band and played a talent show, and that was pretty cool. And then I think it was in ninth grade I put together a band with guys that actually we kind of had a grasp on what you'd actually do if you're in a band. And that band was called Sticky Pete. And Sticky Pete would basically, we would go rehearse at this guy's basement all the time. We never played anywhere, but we rehearsed all the time. We were playing Grand Funk and Hendrix and Black Oak, Arkansas, and uh, I mean, all this stuff of the day. And then one time we played a gig, uh, well, one of the guy's older brothers had a band that was actually playing dances and stuff. And they were going to play over the Arlington Ballroom, which is east of Fremont, Nebraska, where I grew up. When we went over there, they said you could play at our, at our break. You play a couple songs. So we went over and played. That was the first real gig I'd ever done. And after that, we did a talent show or some, some other thing in downtown Fremont where I grew up. And another band called Dog Breath saw me play. And they came over to my house later and asked me if I would join their band. And Dog Breath was doing a lot of gigs. So I joined Dog Breath. And that's where I started actually doing gigs. I was junior in high school. I'm sorry, I was sophomore in high school. And then I was doing dances and all that stuff we do. We'd go... We'd go rent like rent dance halls in the small towns in Nebraska. We'd rent it out, and we'd take our posters around all the towns within like a 50-mile radius and put them up everywhere and put on a dance. And our dads would come take the money, uh, you know, at the door, and we'd, you know, maybe make money or not. That's what we used to do all the time or get a dance to play a homecoming or a prom or whatever. Then we went to Iowa and played a battle of the bands in uh, – guys with established bands of the midwest and stuff and we won the whole fucking thing <laughs> so after we won the thing then we started getting all these gigs and i started every weekend i was a junior in high school my mother would write me a, a note to get me out of class early on friday so i could make my gig across iowa which might be a five-hour drive and we would leave and we'd go play saturday fridays and saturdays and then i'd come home i mean i was making probably 200 bucks a weekend then in the, in 73 probably which is more than I made in, in Los Angeles in like 1981. Right. <laughs> like, it was like, I mean, I was buying stereo, not paying bills. You know, it was great stuff. But Were you playing covers was, or was it original music or what was it? No, fuck no, man. It was just, it was just cover music. You know? oh, I got you. But, uh, and then I, uh, in high school, 
right at the end of high school, I, th I, I thought I would go to art school because that was kind of always going to be my path. But my dad kind of picked up on the idea that I wasn't really, I started looking at art school and he was like, you really don't want to go to art. Why don't you think about music school? And he'd already done some research on, there were five schools that taught guitar then. It was uh, North Texas Berkeley in Boston. And there was one other one. I can't remember what it was. One of them. So I went to a summer class, a summer session in Ber at Berkeley in Boston, the year I graduated from high school. So I went out to Berkeley and of course, and I was start also studying jazz on my own. I just got this. My dad was a jazz drummer. Okay. Oh, wow. So I started getting into jazz and jazz and I thought I wanted to be a jazz guy then. And, but I learned a lot. That's where I started to actually learn theory and stuff. And, uh, that, that I applied the rest of my life. I didn't become a jazz player per se, but I had the knowledge of it. And I, I, even in what I would play in a Mr. I mean, I knew what this, what the stuff was and I could apply some of that in everything I've done. I mean, I could, I throw in things that are some of my jazz roots, the best, but the trick is to make sure nobody recognizes that you're doing that, you know? So, <laughs> you know, the last thing you want to do is think that you actually knew what you're doing. But, um, Anyway, that was that was kind of that was how I got to sort of that level of playing, I guess, and my technique got better, and better. But I always kind of had—I I, guess—I I think I like anybody that is a good player has done well. You know, early on, people see that you've got a feel for it. I never could sight read worth a shit. Still, don't sight read worth a shit. I—I I, but I, you know, I could I—I I had I had the feel and stuff, you know, and I had a great ear. And so I would sit there with my guitar instructors, you know, look at the sheet music. And I know that they'd turn the page for me and act like like I was seeing what they do it just to fuck with me. I know because they, I know they knew that I wasn't actually reading. It. They just, <laughs> just keep playing the song by ear. And I'm sure they recognize it. Well, he's, play, he's a good ear player, but can't read, you know. So. Anyway, That's I don't probably, know if you want me to keep going. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. Well, anyway, I. Uh, Let's see what happened. I I came back. I was going to join a band in New York City. Um, this would be 1975, summer of 75. And I met some guys from New York, and they wanted me to move to New York City to play in a band. It was going back and forth from New York to Las Vegas. It was a show band. And they were backing a, a girl, a woman named Joey Heatherton, who was like a known entity back then, I guess. Um, and so I, was, I came back to Nebraska. I was going to get my stuff and drive back out to New York and move to New York. And I got back to Nebraska, and of course, this is one of the first times of realizing most shit never happens that's supposed to happen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that got a letter and said, we, now we're doing something else, blah, blah, blah. By that time, I was too late to go back to Berkeley for that semester. But I wasn't quite too late to go to North Texas State. So my dad and I drove down to North Texas State. I still didn't know whether I wanted to go there or not. So we were down there messing around trying to figure out uh, what their guitar program was. And it turned out they had two guitar instructors, and they only taught classical guitar. And I had an opportunity to go back to Omaha and work for a booking agent who had been booking my band in high school. So I did that, and I booked bands for two months and realized that if I did it for three months, I'd put a bullet in my head. So I quit doing that, and I joined a band in Iowa City that I was talking to that needed a guitar player. I went over and joined a band in Iowa City, Iowa. That didn't come together, so I went back to music school at Iowa University in Iowa City. Meantime, I joined a bar band, and that starts the whole pace of what the next four years are. I just started playing cover bands everywhere from East Lansing, Michigan to Rapid City, South Dakota. It was me, Chicago, Minneapolis, Fargo, Des Moines, Omaha, all the stuff in between. And I just lived like that, you know, playing five to seven nights a week, wow. three to five sets a night and, uh, and doing that routine, you know. And I'll tell you, even when I got to L.A. and you, you'll talk to people that have just come up in like a city like L.A. or New York and think, I'm just going to do original music. I said, well, the best thing you do is 
get in a cover band for about four or five fucking years and learn to play right. because that's the shit. I mean, that'll teach you so many, and you're going to play shit you don't like, but you're going to learn how to play it all. And that's a, the great school to me. I mean, there's a luxury of saying I've just done original music and great, but if you want to be a great player, you got to play a lot of shit, you know? So right. that stuff was really helpful. So when I, by the time I, then I, I, uh, I, I was in one cover band in Iowa and another better band asked me to join them and I joined them. And we were good. We were a good band. It did uh, really well. We would we would play these gigs in Chicago. We do our our stick, which was covers and all this stuff. But at the end of the night, we just started doing jam sessions, playing jazz. And these bands from all over Chicago would come hang out with us and sit in with us. And it was a pretty cool thing. And th we got a pretty good reputation there. And I remember the saxophone player and I went to L.A. on New Year's Eve of uh, 1979. Well, it was New Year's Day of 1979. And we went around to, uh, to L.A. and we were looking up anybody who knew anybody who had a cousin that knew somebody, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Trying to play tapes and what the fuck. And, you know, people that I, one guy was a guy named Bill Bodine who played bass. Bill Bodine was a producer in uh, L.A. the whole time I was there. But I met Bill because he was playing bass with Melissa Manchester. And they'd been in a, a bar that I was playing in Iowa. And he said, have you ever come out to L.A.? Look, look me up, which I did. And he was sort of helpful. And we looked up other people. There's a guy named Mike Boddicker. I don't know if you'd know that name or not. But Boddicker was a big session synthesizer guy. You know, I don't know what Mike's doing. You, you know Mike, Dave? I know, I know, I know the name, Michael Boddicker, yeah. Yeah, and so, so like in the, in the 70s, he was one of the first guys. He and Ian Underwood were like the first guys that learned how to operate synthesizers when they were, that was a new instrument. So he was working for Quincy Jones and everybody and doing all the records. Those two guys were doing all the shit there. Boddicker's from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and my saxophone player knew him. So when we saw him, I played him a tape of stuff, and he was so impressed, I guess. He calls me the next day and asks me if I want to come play on a session for him. I'm just visiting L.A. I go, yeah, sure. So I go over there to his studio, which was over on Wilshire, about La Cienega and Wilshire area. And I go up there, and, uh, um, oh, gosh, the drummer, Craig Tramp was playing drums who did a lot of stuff back in the day, had just played on Betty Davis' Eyes and some other stuff. Craig was playing drums. Uh, Eric, um, I want to say Eric Nelson was his name. He was in Nick Gilder's band, another name at the time. And I'm playing this song, and they're, they're playing me stuff, that this new hit by a band called The Knack. It's My Sharona. And they're playing me My Sharona, and we want it more sound like this. And, of course, I'm thinking all heady jazz stuff at the time and playing Weather Report back in Chicago. And I'm thinking, do, you really, do we really want to play My Sharona? <laughs> anyway... <laughs> but I could play the hell out of that because I thought rock and roll is easy. And I played it, and Boddicker stayed on my ass for months saying, you got to move to L.A. You could be the next this, the next that. And that was a big big part. He was really pushing me to come to L.A. You could be, he'd name the names of the day. It was Jay, you could be the next Jay Graydon. You could be the next, all he was naming all the hot, you know, guitar guys of, of the time. And I didn't want to, I was loyal to my band. I said, I don't leave my band here. But I came back out and visited him in May that year. And we was taking me around to sessions. Mind you, this is 79, the end of the disco era. And we're going around, and I'm meeting the Sea Wind Horns and Greg Fillingains and, and uh, Nathan. Uh, just all the cats of the day that were, uh, you know, Ed Green playing drums and all the guys that were doing all that shit. And I'm hanging out, and then I'm like, i got to move to L.A., you know. So that's <laughs> in 79. That's when I picked up and sold everything I had back here, and I drove a Volkswagen Rabbit and a Polytone app with those three guitars in a suitcase and went to L.A., and I lived with my uncle. He said, you can stay here for a month and then you're out. And I did. And I'd go, I'd, I'd go to every jam session. 
And one of the biggest jam sessions, one of the biggest things that was big in my life was a place called Josephina's. Does that ring a bell with you, Dave? Was that even around any time you no, were around? I don't think I was around. It was about Woodman, like, well, about, about Woodman Adventure, uh, about a block off. But the point was, on Monday nights, they're having a jam session. And I've seen lots of jam sessions in my life. But this is still the most monumental that I've ever seen in terms of a scene. But it was like, you'd go, it was packed. You could barely get in the place. And everybody in there was a a player and probably a good player. There'd be like 20 guys with drumsticks playing their playing their thighs warming up. There'd be, you know, 16 saxophone cases, guys walking on guitars. And it was kind of a scene. It was almost political to be able to get up and play. I mean, because everybody wanted to play. And there was a guy named Mouse Johnson playing drums. Excuse me. And they had they had this tables pulled away in the corner. And he's playing drums. And I'm trying to think who all was playing. But there was a guitar player named Rick Zoniger. Rick Zoniger to this day is the best jazz guitar player I've ever seen. And I haven't seen him in 20 years. But he was he was in Stevie Wonder's band on Retainer and playing in Wonder's band. He was a Puerto Rican dude, wild hair, like kind of fro-looking hair. And I think he played at 3, 335, but he was playing like bebop type, George Benson type stuff. But I mean, on steroids. Like I would sit and watch this guy and think, I'm going, I'm moving home. I, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I don't, that's it. I mean, this fucking guy, I mean, was crazy good. And so was everybody. But the other thing is, I was at that time really into funk, and I still am. I've always been into the groove of music more than anything else. The rhythm in music is probably the most attractive thing to me, you know, honestly. So I'm kind of a stickler about that, the pocket and everything. That's, that's what I love. But so, And I'm watching these guys, mostly black musicians, R&B guys, and that kind of the Earth, Wind, and Fires guys, Rufus's guys, George Benson's band. All those guys were there. And I'm in heaven, man. I'm just thinking these grooves are like the real shit being played by the real cats that do the real shit. And I was so excited. I had my 355 with me, and I wanted to go up and play. And I found this guy, Mouse, and I said, hey, man, I just moved out here from – I was playing in Chicago a lot in the Midwest and everything. And he said, well, I don't know if you like me or what. He said, well, you can go up with the last bunch of guys. He named the guys I was going up with. And I got together and I said, what do you want to play? Now, mind you, this is jazz. I said, let's play Ornithology, Charlie Parker. And they go, great. And then we get up on stage. It's our turn last. And this is pre-tuner. You don't even have tuners then. You know, you have to listen by ear. And I remember getting down in front of the keyboard players, Twin reverb amp and listen, give me an A, and I'm trying to tune it. And about that time, I hear guys say, oh, fuck ornithology, let's play milestones. I don't know milestones. So they go, and it's just tempo. go, one, two, one, two, three, four. That's the tempo, right? So it's bebop, and if any of your listeners know bebop, they change keys every, every. I mean, this, that's all they do. It just changes keys. It's two, five, one progression, two, five. And if you don't know the song, you don't fake. I mean, it's not like blues in, in, in B flat. It's right. <laughs> you're out. So by the time I'm even in tune, cause I was probably a quarter tone out of tune, they go, your turn to solo. And I just step to the front of the stage and just start fucking playing notes that have nothing to do with anything. <laughs> and, and I mean, it was, it, I mean, I wish I have tapes. I wish I just have videos of this shit cause it was so fucking bad that I, <laughs> I mean, I remember walking up that stage so discouraged and nobody talked to me and nobody, you know, it was just such a fucking, downer that i mean i went home i lived with a couple other musicians from the midwest then we rented a place in van nuys i went home and i said that's it i'm moving back home i just fucked myself for good and uh anyway more to the story is that and i'll, I'll come to an end here at a point no, somebody no, else can going, talk man. anyway <laughs> no, fine. anyway so what else happened and earlier in that night, that same night, I'd watched this one thing where these guys were grooving their ass off. And this one drummer was a guy named Dennis Davis. 
who was in two bands at the time. He was in Stevie Wonder's band. He was in David Bowie's band. And he was a skinny black dude. And his head just went back and forth. Like It reminded me of the bobbly heads in the back of a car and perfectly in time. And his groove was like fucking perfect. And I watched that guy play and I was so into it. And then a big sort of big cat kind of comes stumbling up and takes over the groove and starts playing the hi-hat while, he, while David stands up and takes over the groove. And then he plays a little different. Same kind of groove, but harder hitting. And everybody's going nuts. And it's so grooving. And they said, yeah, that's Andre Fisher from Rufus, who was the original drummer of Rufus. Oh, whatever. But there's a catch to that, because Andre Fisher was a guy that my bass player in Iowa always said was his cousin. My cousin's Andre Fisher with Rufus, and we always thought he was full of shit anyway. <laughs> well, this plays into something later, because I go home and tell my musician roommates, oh, there's this great jam session, blah, blah, blah. We start going over the hanging out, but I don't take a, I don't take a guitar anymore. Now I'm doing recon. I go in and I just I just keep studying all the songs they're playing. I keep listening to who's doing what, and I go home and learn this stuff because I think I'm going to come back in at one point. I'm boning up on what's going on. So one time I'm in there, and the same guys play, and Andre gets up and plays drums. He goes walking back, and he goes walking by me on the table here, and uh, big dude. And I pull on his shoulder a little bit. I said, you Andre Fisher? Yeah, I'm Andre. And I said, you know Dave Green? He goes, where do, you, where do you know Dave Green from? I go, well, I was in a band with him back in Iowa. He goes, man, I've been looking at that fucker for six months. You know I get a hold of him? I said, well, I do. And somehow God once in a while shines down and tells me what to do and says, I said, yeah, I've got his number, but it's, why don't you give me your number because it's at home and I'll call you tomorrow. So now I've got Andre's number. So the next day I call him and give him Dave Green's number. But I also say, he says, I got a gig. I've been producing this girl named Brenda Russell. She's got a hit called So Good, So Right. And I want Dave to go on the road with her. I said, do you need a guitar player? Well, yeah, I do. Can I come play you something? Yeah. So I go over to his house that afternoon and start playing on my tapes, the same stuff I'd brought to L.A. and played for Boddicker and those guys. And he hires me. He goes, I'll give you this gig, man. I go, right. Nice. So now I'm getting this gig, by the way. So then the next week, I go into Josephinus, and I got my damn guitar this time. And I got my big Apple hat, and I'm all that shit, you know. And I go in, and, and then they, the big boys go up to play, and everybody's going to go on. So he sees me, he goes, Steve, you want to play with us? Of course I do. So I get up. Now this time, it's a funk groove in E, and I do fucking know where E is. So, <laughs> I mean, so we played our ass off, and uh, you know we really, we really killed it. And, and then Dennis Davis got up. And then this guy named Derek, Jack, Derek Jackson, who had been playing the gig, comes up and sits right in front of me and goes, man, I want to play with you. He jumps up on stage and plays a song with me. Well, fuck, I have a big night, obviously. And I'm giving out phone numbers everywhere. Derek becomes my best pal at that point. He later went on to play with Al Jarreau and a bunch of people. But he and I would go to every fucking jam session in L.A. We'd go on Sunday afternoons when there'd be three people sleeping at the bar and we'd play. I mean, I went anywhere that anywhere. And. He would take me, and he was black, so he he would take me down to places that I probably wouldn't have gone to, or just uh, we went down. I mean, deep. We went down into Watson, some really deep shit. Right. I mean, one time, and I love this story because <laughs> what a dumb fucker I was. I'm carrying my guitar through. I mean, freaking rough neighborhood. But we go into this this club, and it's packed, and I'm the only white male in the in the place. Um, anyway, he goes up to the band. It's a, it's a horn band. It's a big band. And they're, yo, Derek, and they're all happy. Hey, Derek, what's that, man? And he goes, Derek, are you going to get a play? Yeah. He said, can my friend Steve play? And they go, no. Uh -huh. White. So they, they, they tell me I can't play. And Derek talks him into it. No, man, he can play. He can play. And they let me up to play reluctantly. And then I played, and they said, you can come back and play with us anytime. 
I always remember that moment because I was like, <laughs> you kind of got over in the hood. You, you know yeah, what I mean? You proved, it, you proved yourself. And I mean, I mean, that was big to me because that's really, that's the shit I loved. And I thought, fuck, I'm getting over well, they don't want me to get over. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, that was my first year in L.A. I used to just play with that those kind of cats. And those guys, those are the guys I was hanging with. Um, but, you know, then you do a million things like you would know from talking to anybody there and all the guys Dave's worked with and everything. You, then you just start finding different shit. You're trying to play on demos for everybody. You're in seven bands at any one time. You know, I was in a cover band playing in Santa Barbara every Sunday, Monday night to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. And one thing leads to another, and I and uh, and I'll get you right to the where things became professional for me, sure. uh, to that level. And that was that I was in a band called the Mambo Jets with a good friend of mine, still to this day, a guy named Kim Bullard, who's playing keyboards with Elton John now, but he's played with a million people and has been one of my best friends the whole time. Kim and I had a band called the Mambo Jets, it's original music, and I was kind of the I was the soloist, so I was playing lots of guitar in it. We were playing down at the uh, Blue Lagoon Saloon in Marina Del Rey. We played our set, and I go walking off, just packed, and there are other people playing. I think Michael Thompson actually was, that's the first time I saw Mike. He was playing in another band at the time. He was a new guy in town at that time, too. I can't remember the band he was playing, but I remember digging Mike. And uh, anyway, I walked to the back of the room, and some guy comes up to me and goes, Hey, man, I want to talk to you, man. I go, Yeah. I said, uh, Ace Freely's leaving Kiss. He said, uh, Would you be interested in auditioning? I said, well, wait a minute, man. I, I got a Volkswagen Rabbit that I have to run and pop the clutch to start and eat Campbell's soup every night. Why the fuck would I want to audition for Kiss? Anyway, so, <laughs> anyway, so he says, you got the look. You got this. Hey, call this number. She's taking care of it. Okay. I call a number. Some girl answers down in Hollywood. We'll put together a tape and blah, blah, blah. So I go around. I start grabbing all the tapes I can. Some of the shit I did back in Iowa. I had some live stuff. I, just stuff that I thought might impress somebody as a guitar player. And Tony Peluso helped me. He was the guitar player of the Carpenters back in the day and a, an engineer that I'd worked with by that time and who I really liked. And we went to his house. He helped me put a compilation of things together. And I went down to in Hollywood on Sunset, I remember. And I go into this office, and there's some girl that works for Kiss. And she goes, okay. And she listens to my tape while I'm there and looks completely uninterested. And I just and I left, and I thought, another day in the life, another day in the whatever. Didn't happen. Big deal. But two weeks later, I got a phone call. And, and the guy says, is this Steve Ferris? I go, yeah. He goes, this is Paul Stanley from Kiss. He said, Gene and I really like your tape. I want to know if you want to come in. And we're playing, we're recording out the record plan. We're just kind of having guys into play as an audition. Would you come down? Again, it's one of those answers. No, fuck, I got some other shit I got to do. No, I didn't. But uh, they said, come on down, be down at two. And I said, okay. I'd been in the record plan a couple of times, but only after hours when somebody got some free time or something. But this time I'm walking in in daylight hours. And I remember Tom Petty comes in out of one door and goes in another. Luther Vandross is talking on the, on the payphone. Somebody else I saw who was you know, very famous. And then the last Studio D, this is the old record plant that got torn down where they have the Beverly Center now. But, but anyway, uh, Studio D, and I walk, there's a sliding glass window, and there's four people in there. There's a guy running the, running the there's a guy engineering, uh, there's a guy playing guitar, and here's Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. And, of course, it's the first time you've ever seen him without makeup. It's 1982. Uh. And they come out say, hey, great for coming down, man. Thanks. You wait out here in the hall while we get another guy. I go, great. I waited about three hours out there. It was kind of a long three hours, but, you know, three hours that you're, 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 you're thankful for. Do you know who but the other guy was? What's that? Do you know who the other guy was? I know. Bob Kulik. Oh, okay. Bruce's brother. And, and uh, anyway... He had played, and he walks out, and I met him that time. I don't know if I ever saw Bob again, but 
But, you know, they barbecue out great, and he leaves. And I walk in, and Paul says, here, I got a marshal in the other room. Here's your cord. I remember plugging my Valley Art Strat and my Goodrich. I took my Goodrich volume pedal, and I had that C1 chorus. And I plugged this shit into his mono into some Marshall. And uh, he goes, it's in G. It's a, it's a, I don't know, I think it was an eight-bar solo. He goes, it's eight bars. We'll scroll you up the bridge. I'll count you in. I go, okay. You know, he comes up to this bar, and he goes, counts me in. And I play a take, and they go, give him another take. And they play a second take. And they stop the tape, and Gene says, will you dye your hair black? And I go, sure. He goes, can you wear high heels? I'll give it a fucking try. We didn't do much in Nebraska, but I'll sure do it here. Anyway, um, and, and they, they were going nuts over this. Well, that moment is maybe the f- most famous solo I've ever played, because that's the solo on a song called Creatures of the Night on the Creatures of the Night album. That's the second take of my audition. And I've done three interviews about that solo in the last year. All my life, I do interviews about that freaking solo. And it was just an audition flying off the cuff. So that was another big moment. You know what I mean? So That's wild. And that's when things did change. So, but, but, so, okay. So they record you for the, for the, uh, for the audition. But what happened with the audition? Like what, what was the. Okay. Well, I like to say they were going nuts. Like, like as if I was going to be in the band. And of course I'm excited. And I like to say that solo got used. But so for a couple of weeks, I thought I might be the new guitar player in Kiss. And they'd have me down again. And then they would, then they wanted to play with me. This is, okay. I'm going to come back to this story. I'm going to tell you another story first that sets this one up. Okay. One of the other things that happened to me earlier in my time in LA, one of the first, it was at Josephinas. And I'd been, I saw these guys hang out at the bar. They were a band called Player. Do you remember Baby Come Back? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, they, that, that song was number one for like eight weeks. And it was on Midnight Special all the time and everything. And I'd just seen them on TV. They're standing at the bar, so you guys, yeah, we're player, blah, blah, blah. We're looking for a guitar player. Well, I go get that gig with them, and I play with them for a month, and they're just enamored with my playing, but their manager comes in, a guy I got to know later on in, in my career, but anyway, he comes in and reminds them that the guy they lost was a guy named J.C. Crowley, who was their second lead singer. And he goes, what does he sing like? And I go, I don't sing. Anyway, I ended up losing that gig because I don't sing, okay? So the kid, now I move forward to Kiss, and they said, we need to see what it sounds like to have us all play as a band. So we go over to SIR. I have my stuff there. And now we're playing as a band. It was Eric Carr on drums, Paul Stanley, and Gene Simmons, and me. And they go, we've got to hear you sing. And I go, you do? So <laughs> and this is like, I already know, oh, well, this is not going to go for a while. So anyway, they start talking to me. And Paul's saying, man, I didn't used to think I could sing either. And you got to do really talk. I realized at the moment, you go, well, I'm either going to try to fucking sing right now and maybe get the gig, but if I don't sing, I know I don't got the gig. It's one of those moments, you know? So I have the dubious distinction of having played Honky Tonk Woman with Kiss with me singing lead vocal, and if I had a video of anything, I wish I had that. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't hear from him again (laughs) for two weeks, and then I do get a call from Paul. He goes, you know, we don't think you're the right guy for the band, but we want to keep hiring you to do sessions, and they did. So they hired me to go down. I was playing other parts on that record. Meanwhile, I got an Alan Pasqua got me an audition with Eddie Money. That's another whole story. It was kind of a that was an interesting audition to have to get, but I and I finally got the gig with them, with Eddie. And so I would be down playing with Kiss, and I was rehearsing with Eddie at that time. And I remember the last thing I played with Kiss, I was at record plant. I'd leave at one o'clock or whatever to catch my flight to go make a gig with Eddie Money and Casper, Wyoming, and, and I toured with Eddie. 
and then I could keep telling you a million other stories other than that. Wow, that's 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 super. I might cool. have to make a martini if I keep talking. You know that. Yeah, <laughs> no problem. You said. If you it's have, not a problem. yeah, just you just make sure to tell us how you do it. You know what's the. Well, I will. Okay. Let's let's do that, shall we? Yeah, sure. <laughs> there you go. Ask a question. I'll keep talking. Okay. Um, I find that there are many ways to make more tea. Can you see me? It's a little blurry, but yeah, we can see you. It's well, like it's very close right now. I'll just turn it this way. But I'll keep talking about other stuff. But anyways, martini, you have to... Well, when they say they want to dry it, it can't have very much vermouth, right? So some guys just like to walk across the room and say the word vermouth. Other guys might coat the glass a little bit. I pour a little more in there than I even want. And then I pour out the rest. The key to a good martini is shaking. A lot of shaking. I learned this from a friend of mine's wife recently who used to be a bartender. And uh, the better you shake it, the better it is. So, anyway. Must shake it hard. I love this show. You want <laughs> this is the first time we've actually had martini make yeah, show, is. which I <laughs> And why is that not coming out? I don't know why. You got to put vodka in it? No, no vodka. Gin. Gin? Gin is an actual martini. Vodka is not, by the way. What, what gym do you use? What gin do you What's use? What's that? What gin? I'm a beef feeder man. Okay. Beef feeder is my, uh, my deal. Um, yeah, vodka, they'll say, you, you'll see these martini lists at, at restaurants, but Martini is actually the one drink. The gin drink came from London. So if it had... came from London. See that kind of white, yeah, airy thing. Ooh, lovely. Now, I'm actually only going to pour a little olive juice rather than olives themselves. Ah, Same yeah. effect. And the more juice you put in more it's called a dirty martini mm -hmm. now i always say the reason i drink a martini is because they're a sure thing um <laughs> that's all i can tell you well yeah but you do have a they shelf. say one's not enough and two's too many it's one of those you, you, you anyway. do have a shelf of single malts in the cheers, back guitar. <laughs> cheers cheers i know dave and i are we're going dry tonight but uh oh yeah that's okay. Anyway. Yeah, enjoy. That's awesome. Uh, you're, you're making me a little thirsty for, for a martini, though. <laughs> I know. Right now, right now, I want a martini. Yeah. Oh, martini. They're awesome, after, man. After my experience with Jake, I don't really want scotch for a while. But... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, I, we could go there. I showed you the bar. <laughs> yeah, the mix, the mix of, uh, of, yeah. Unfortunately, I mixed too many things that night, and it wasn't good. That's the difference. That, of course, we all know that's the deal. The mix I know. Oh, yeah, yeah, don't do that. And especially you start mixing with sugary things, like the other. I always like about absinthe cocktail. What's that? What's, what's like that? absinthe cocktail? Absinthe. Absinthe. Oh yeah. When you start getting absinthe into that kind of stuff, or, after a bottle of scotch, oh. or you finish out with like Grand Marnier or something that's real sweet, that's the hangover. Yeah. That's when you Imagine. get into, you know. But anyway, back to guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so okay, so tell us. Um, when did you at this point all right so you're you're playing with eddie money um how long did that 
happen and then what what's the next step from from there yeah there's a lot that's there's a real transitional time i played with eddie <laughs> i'll tell you that story too i go down i get an audition for him um and he was playing as I, i'm trying to think what the name of that place it doesn't matter it's rehearsal studio and play at el rey and i go over there and Eddie's not there, but his band's there. And Ralph Carter, the bass player, is kind of handling the thing. A drummer named Gary Ferguson, who I knew, I'd played with Gary on some things. He'd been, he was in the band. Didn't know the other guys, but I didn't know any of the songs. But they'd tell me what they were. They were actually new, mostly new songs off the album, No Control. And I didn't know them. And so they'd say, oh, it's an F minor. It goes like this, like this. And of course, I'd jump in, like, which is what, if you're trying to be a session guy or that guy, that's, you know, that's what the work is. You're, how fast can you come up with something or figure it out or you know that's the deal so you know and i did well and they seemed very impressed so they i went because i want to call eddie and get him down here so he calls eddie who lived up in the bay area and eddie flies down meanwhile uh bill graham's management company is calling me and already negotiating my salary to go on the road which mind you was pittance but I'd already been told by my friend who used to work for him and they, you know, be real tough because they'll really try to not, you know, not pay you and all that shit. So, and I'll tell you the numbers. <laughs> they were on me $600 a week and I was holding out for $625. <laughs> you know? yeah. so, and I was holding my ground, man. And to the point of I, nothing had been, been determined, but by the time I meet Eddie, I'm in the rehearsal with him. And I think this actually affected, he'd already heard that and he thought I was maybe being an asshole or something. I don't know. But I'll never forget, and I can't really show you here, but if you're here, I'll show you live. I'll never forget the time when they said, Eddie, this is Steve Ferris. And he looks, puts his hand and shake my hand, looking the other way, goes, yeah, nice to meet you. <laughs> no, doesn't even look at me. <laughs> That's my first encounter with Ed. So, so after that, he goes, well, let's play so-and-so. Do you know such-and-such? I go, no. He goes, oh, well, do you know such-and-such? I go, no, I don't know, but I can learn it. Well, what songs do you know? I said, I don't know a lot of them, but I'll learn them right now. Well, he didn't like any of that because I didn't know any of his songs. It was pretty pretty clear that I wasn't the guy he was hoping I was because I didn't know his songs yet. And Ralph was sticking to no, Steve learns them really fast, which you think might be a better test anyway. But I didn't know his songs. I play with him a bunch, and Eddie says to me, well, some of the guys like you, some of the guys like this other guy. We'll let you know. And I knew the keyboard player a little bit. I'd call him later that night, and I, wasn't, I didn't get the gig. Okay. So... Meanwhile, I'm doing the kiss thing. And then I get a call five days later. Well, this other guy, though he hired him, isn't really working out. He's not that good a player. Learn this song, this song, this song, come back down to an audition, which I did. And then I come down and I play and Eddie goes, welcome to, welcome to Eddie Money Band. And so then I started playing with Eddie and I did a six month tour with him on the road. America stuff. And just that was my first big time, you know, my first you know shows in the in the big arena yeah. and it was great man yeah. i mean it was really wonderful I mean, it was the first time i'd really seen that side of oh my god we're playing big rock shows. was he headlining or opening up for somebody no he was he was well we did certain shows we were kind of headlining but basically we're out i'm trying to we were open wasn't that band it was a canadian band called april wine oh yeah yeah, yeah, I remember april yeah. Wine. and we were out opening for april wine for a month and then we opened for 38 special for two months cool and um you know, one of the great times, and everybody would relate, or everybody would love this. It was, I got to have that moment of going back to the hometown, you know. Right. I'm from Fremont, Nebraska, which is about 30 miles from Omaha, okay? 
Now, Eddie used to introduce everybody in the band, you know, as you do. And before that moment, I told Eddie, I said, remember, Eddie, I'm from Fremont, Nebraska, not only Fremont. And, of course, I had cousins and friends and every fucking person there. But, and I'll never forget it. Day I said, no, last but not I was on the end of the stage. I was always introduced last. Last but not least, and his parents here, I'm sure they're very proud of him. From Fremont, Nebraska, Steve Ferris. Of course, the place went nuts, Fremont boy. I mean, that, I, I'll, you'll, I'll always remember that moment of, like, shit, went back home, did it. You know what I mean? Right. I had a few other of those things later with Mr. Mister, too. But, I mean, those are those big moments of, oh, fuck, how perfect is life at this moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, awesome. I mean, it was great. Tremendous. I still, whether it made it through the flood or not, I kept that cassette. The board the board mixer gave me a cassette so I could hear that. You know, you know. So, anyway, I, went, uh, I played with him, and I got back off the road. I think it was about Christmas time that year. And, and then, you know, you're, you're looking for gigs, you know, you just, you had a Rolodex back then, you know, that's, that's where your phone numbers were. Mm -hmm. And then you just go through the Rolodex and you had an answering machine, you know, and you'd scroll through the Rolodex and call every fucker you knew and ask them, you know, if anything was going on. And you're just trying to, that's how you kept yourself alive in those days. Mm -hmm. And then one, one of the calls went to a guy named George Giz, who had managed a band called Pages and Pages, uh, Pages was like, a real musically accepted band, the musicians in LA. Maybe you knew about them, Dave. I don't know, but no, not before me, I think. Yeah, but it, but okay, but it was uh, anyway. You know, Vinnie Caliud is playing on it, and Richard Page and Steve George, who later formed Mister Mister, with they were all and Graydon produced one. Anyway, it was I, I'd seen them play, and we all liked them, you know. But they never achieved any commercial success. They had three albums out, and everybody thought, oh, Page is really good. But anyway. They had disbanded, but George, the guy I mentioned earlier, had, had managed them. And so I called him, and he goes, Steve and Rich, these guys that had pages, are thinking about putting something together again. You interested in looking at them? I said, yeah. So I went out to La Cunata to Richard's house, and there was a – they were there, the key, Steve George being a keyboard player and Rich being a singer, and they had a drummer and a, a bass player and me. Well, I hit it off with you guys. The drummer and bass player didn't hit it off. So we went on to look for drummers and bass players. And we auditioned different guys, and I kept hanging with them. We were, you know, getting this thing going. And Kim Bullard, again, I mentioned him earlier, but Kim said, remember the guy who used to play with Holly Knight, Pat Mastelato, drummer, blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, I do. I actually played with him one time. Call him. Well, I call Pat Mastelato. Pat says, I got a bass player I can bring down. I'm not snapping his name. Good guy. Uh, went on to do some things. I'm not thinking of right now. But anyway, but uh, he didn't make it to the audition, but Pat did. Turns out, we went home later, and this guy had, had a tooth problem, had to go to a dentist, and didn't make it to the Mr. Mr. audition. Well, what happened is the three of us are there, and then Pat's playing drums, and we could right away hear he was very good. And we were like, shit, man, we got to hear this guy play. And there was a bass in the studio. And Rich, Richard Page is the kind of guy who plays some of everything. Mm -hmm. So he could pick up the bass. And they'd already written a bunch of songs. And at that time, it was kind of new wave, and it was all eighth note bass, pretty simple stuff. Mm -hmm. And so Rich could pick it up, play with him, and we were like, this sounds great. Why do we get need a bass player? So literally the next day, Richard Page went out and bought a bass and an app, and the four of us formed Mr. Mister. We didn't name it that that day, but that's how Mr. Mister started. And we started rehearsing. We rehearsed for about two months and came up with a name and all that stuff. And we had they had some money left over from the last record deal, enough to rent out SIR and, uh, and some, some lights and sound from Super Tramp we put on a big showcase and had all these labels down and we did one showcase. We had five labels biting after one showcase. But I got to tell you, I, uh, 
tooting my own horn about that band, but I've been in a million bands even by then. And I had also, I won't, I'm, I'm, I'm skipping over many things, but I'd gotten together with Kenny Loggins and he talked to me about going on the road with him, but he knew Rich. And I, I had this, I, I'd tell people, I said, I don't know, man. I'm playing with Rich and Steve on this thing and something's going on, you know, mm-hmm. something. This is maybe really something. That's you know, you could, right. you know, like, this shit is fucking really good. You know, mm-hmm. everybody in the band was very strong. And and you just thought, there's there's a lot of substance in this deal. So, stuck with it. We had that first showcase and had five labels. And then we had Arista interested in us. So, Clive Davis flew out for a special showcase, his own. We put on another showcase for him and another great time. He came across the, <laughs> came across the floor after he got done playing to talk to me about my guitar playing. I always liked that. You're a very talented guitar player. That was great. But he didn't sign us. And then... Uh, um, God, Neil Portnow, who we see on the Grammys and running all that, we've seen him for years, but Neil was the guy with Harris at the time, and he, he had wanted to sign us, but didn't get it done. Um, I'm trying to think, I think it was Mike Austin, Warner, Warner Brothers wanted to sign us. We got down to Warner's and RCA, and RCA signed us after we did one more. We played a gig out in, out in Studio City, and I don't remember that place, but we played a gig out there and, and uh, got signed. But that band, man, Mr. Mr., like when we played that gig when we were getting signed out of this club, I can't think of the name of a day. It was on studio. It was in Studio City on Ventura, and it's long gone, I'm sure. But, but I mean, everybody came out because Rich and Steve had been singing on a lot of sessions, so they knew everybody. So, Lukather and a lot of the Toto guys were out there, and Al Jarreau was out there, and Kenny Loggins was out there, and all these people were out there to see our showcase, and they're all backstage afterwards just raving. And you know, I gotta say, we felt like we were killing it. We were good, man. We were really good, and we had a lot of momentum. And then we made a record that didn't didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we but we lived through that because Paul Atkinson and RCA kept us on, and we went on to co-produce the next record with a guy named Paul Devillier, where it really became a band effort, and we were all co-writing the stuff and co-producing. And Paul Devillier was a, and that's the record that went on to have the hits and and be the big deal. Mm-hmm. So I can keep talking. I get bored of myself. That, I mean, that was like right at the right time. You know, right place, right time. You know, MTV. The video, oh, it was. The videos that were happening back then. Yeah, no, we did all that shit was big for us. Yeah. Yeah. The videos did well for us. All that stuff. Yeah. It all worked. You know what else is an interesting thing that I tell a lot of people about that don't know anything about music really, but because it's such a famous name now. But Jose Menendez, the famous Menendez murder trial, huh, yeah. if you know what I mean. Uh-huh. Jose was running RCA, and he was our champion at RCA with Mr. Mister. He was the guy pushing us, and he was our guy, and that was he was a big part of with Broken Wings, staying with it longer than anybody else would have because it took a while to break that song. But Jose was a, our fan and a big deal for us in the whole career. And everything. Wow. It, was, it was pretty interesting. Then to go on with what happened in that whole thing. I mean, I remember meeting those kids when they were like 13 years old, you know. And wow. uh, and what's that? I said, wow. Yeah, that's no, crazy. It's crazy. I mean, I went to their wake, to his wake, before they knew they were the murder suspects, shook hands with them. It was, it's one of those crazy real life things that I, I tell people about. I said, I, I knew, I used to sit with him and his wife. He'd get limos and come out and hang with me and my high school buddies and drive around in Austin, Texas and go to bars and stuff, you know? I mean, it's just weird how life is so, I don't know. That's it's crazy. weird how, you, how many you, places you find yourself. What's that? Knowing him uh, the way that you did, do you believe the, the stories that, that they said about the. I, 
because this is such a big public thing, I won't get into much of any of that. Okay. I, I all I know of Jose, he was a really, really strong personality, strong businessman. Yeah, and that was my relationship with him. So that's cool. I don't know. Okay, I was just curious. No, that's cool. Yeah. So um, that's wild. Yeah, I didn't realize that he worked. He he was mm. an executive. He turned RCA around. His deal was he was a business guy, right? He had he had done so well with Hertz Rent a Car, which was owned by RCA. They said, why don't you go run the record company? Mind you, when Mr. and Mr. was on RCA, I saw five different presidents the whole time. Five different record company presidents while we were doing it. I mean, they were just going through them. Right. Um, anyway, he came on and he turned he turned the record company around and was doing great. He was the kind of guy that said, what are we selling today? Records? Okay, I'll figure that out. Right. And then he went on from there and, and when RCA got sold, and that was that, you know, for Mr. Mr., there was a lot of turnover of things rca got sold and and eventually bmg bought them and rca got bought by ge and everybody got fired and there's new people and then there's new people again in those transfers of things shit gets shit gets kind of fucked up and i think that was you said the timing was so good for us in the, that one point at that one point right. and then the time was so bad for us at the next point right that's kind of one of the, right so. now when you guys formed mr mr because clearly you've been talking about, you know, your jazz background and, you know, bebop and all these different styles of music. Was Mr. Mr. aimed at being, you know, a pop band or, you know, like, or was it more like, did you guys have all these different styles from the different players that were in the band? I mean, I'm just curious, like, what was, what did you guys set out to, to, to make, what kind of music was it? Yeah. Well, that's a good question, and and a question that's kind of uh, kind of doesn't have a real definitive answer. But I'll tell you, I would tell you, like in a general sense, uh, Richard the singer is very R and B oriented, to where his loves are. Um, Steve George Keyroy would have a lot of jazz in his background, both very musical, for lack of better terms. Pat, very musical too, but more rock in his energy. Me, more rock in my energy. Mm. And I do. I've always thought that was part of why Mister Mister worked because everybody in the band was pretty musical and had some sophistication to their musicality, you know. But I think because Pat and I had some of the aggression type of the stuff combined with the more cerebral stuff, the other two guys, it became sort of what it was. Mm-hmm. And and in the beginning of Mister Mister, like I said, those two guys had already written all the songs when they met me and Pat, and they were cool songs, but they were very much probably their attempt to be in the times. Um, cool songs, very musical, very interesting, but with it, like I say, a new wave sort of beat, and kind of a lighter beat, and, but, but interesting and interesting turns and certainly were musical. But I think it was like the second record when all of our influences were, it was truly a band sound then. And, um, that was when we were at our best. And, uh, you know, I think different people wanted different things at times, but I think at that moment, that was when it was ringing through. We were all equally influencing it. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when it kind of became that Welcome to the Real, Real World album, which had Curie and Broken Wings and all those songs. Like we did the next album, Go On. I think there's really cool writing on that. I think, I think, however, I think that album got a little more introspective lyrically and that sort of thing, which is fine, but maybe dangerous. Uh, it did get a little tame in the production. The interesting thing, though, on the other hand, I thought we were a more mature band and playing even better. Like the grooves are better and just the tightness of the band and the per band 
thank God. See, I mean, we've been playing so much at that point. Mm -hmm. So like the performances on that record, I have always loved. But the end product of the mixes and stuff, I think it just tamed down and got a little too heady. And and the results were that, you know, it didn't cross over into where everybody can get it. So. Um, no, that's awesome. We got, we've got a question here from El Elnin. He says, Steve, can you say something about your Valley Arts guitars from back in the day? And he said, I love this ep episode. Thank you. <laughs> my Valley Arts guitars, um, this goes back to one of the earlier stories when I said I lost all my guitar. I mean, I lost, my guitars got stolen and I didn't have any money and I would borrow guitars and all that shit. And then I finally got it together to be able to commission Mike McGuire to make me that Valley Arts strap. The kind of copper colored it was it's I, and I have it still it's, it's a uh, quilted maple body mm. and bird's eye maple neck and it was you know all the bells and whistles and I will tell you this what was I don't I didn't catch your guys name but whoever you are I'll tell you a story about that first value strat this my favorite story about the guitar is that we were doing the first Mr. Mystery album we're over at um, I'm not thinking of the name I didn't remember where the studio was on, on Santa Monica but it doesn't matter I get a phone call about the time we're finishing up and it's a phone call from a guy named Dwayne Hitchings. Dwayne was a keyboard player who wrote, do you think I'm sexy with Rod Stewart and stuff? And I had done Eddie Money's record with him with Tom Dowd and we kind of knew each other. And Dwayne calls me out of the blue and says, Hey man, I'm over at record plant with Carmen Apsey and Jeff Beck. And he'd gotten Apsey, he'd gotten Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart together. They're doing a song called people get ready. They've hated each other for years. I don't know if everybody knows this, but, but Jeff Beck discovered Rod Stewart. More or less, he was in a, he was in the Jeff Beck group, right, right, exactly. but they falling out. It was kind of famous and all that stuff. Anyway, he knew I was a big Jeff Beck fan, as I am. And anyway, um, he goes, "We're over here working with Jeff, and we've been borrowing guitars to throw together this record. You got Can you bring over some guitars?" I said, "Well, fuck yeah, I can bring over some guitars." <laughs> I said, yes. I said, but Jeff plays traditional uh, vibrato bars, Fender, and I, I got Floyd Roses on everything I got here. He goes, I don't know what you're talking about. Here's Jeff. He puts Jeff on the phone. So now I'm on the phone with one of my two biggest idols, the first being Hendrix, second being Jeff Beck. And I go, <laughs> he goes, hey, man, it's, it's, it's nice of you to bring a guitar. I said, Jeff, I'm bringing him over, but I got Floyd Roses on both. And he goes, what the fuck? He goes, what's that? And I love that Jeff Beck, in the middle of everybody's playing Floyd Roses, he's the best guitar player in the world and doesn't really know what a Floyd Rose is. Right. Which tells me it's just the brilliant talent doesn't give a fuck yeah. about it, any of it. I mean, this guy transcends all this shit. So I go, well, I'll bring him over. So I go over to the record plant. I'm in the, and I. Because uh, they were endorsed, I was endorsing. But I have, I've said it a million times. I said, I'm standing there. Jeff's sitting on a, Beck's sitting on a stool next to me. I was standing kind of behind him, and he's trying to cut my charge. And he picks up that quilted Maple Valley Arts, plays a little bit, looks up, and he goes, "Oh, it's a bit of a Rolls Royce, isn't it?" <laughs> I'm like, "Oh, thank you, Jeff." <laughs> so that was the endorsement of the guitar from Jeff Beck, and so he was playing that through a rock man on "People Get Ready" to da 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 da, all that stuff, mm -hmm. and yeah. the solo da 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 da, all that stuff, and that's so that's my Valley Arts through a rock band with Jeff Beck playing it. And I, I, he played like three or four solos. His manager kicked us out of the room, said, Jeff doesn't want anybody else in the room. And I go, okay. So Hitching is, and I went out into the, out of the control room, went in the sound room, which was, had the lights off, but we picked up headphones and we sat there and listened to him do his takes. I listened to him play like seven solos, which are all like solos you wish you ever played. Right. And he was pissed. He didn't like any of them. So he goes, oh, I'm frustrated. I don't like any. He left. But when I heard that record come out, I thought, 
I think that's those solos he played, or that's the, one of the solos he played. And then I was at the NAMM show with Lukather and I were walking around, and he knows Beck. Well, I don't really know Jeff. I met him a few times. And he introduced me to Jeff, and I said, I don't even remember this, but I brought over a guitar, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, we ended up using it in the track. So that's my that's my Valley Arts credit right there. That's my favorite. That's awesome. It's, it's played on records and other things, but that's my favorite credit. <laughs> and, he, and, and apparently he liked the Floyd Rose, so. He played the shit out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I Jeff have... doesn't have a lot of trouble with the whole playing thing. What's that? I said Jeff doesn't have a whole lot of trouble with that whole playing thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I... I don't think it's a problem. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just put a guitar in his hands, right? Anyway, and the other Valley Arts to your to your to your man there that asked. Ellen. Uh, Ellen no, Ellen I just had. I think his name is. Ellen. Yeah. I had a great great relationship with them. They took care of me. My deal with Valley Arts is they somehow Mike and 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 they just took they started taking care of me when I got there in town before I had a pot to piss in. He didn't even charge me for work half the time I could charge till I could afford it. I mean, I just go back with Mike McGuire and those guys, and and, uh, and that was just a scene back then. Man. And you'd be upstairs at that old Valley Arts on studio, in Studio City on Ventura, and Larry Carlton would be upstairs talking to him, or it'd be, it'd be all the guys, man. Luke Thur, uh, Lee Sklar. I mean, it was just really, really high-quality guitars. I, I, I've always felt bad for them because they tried to, tried to grow, and they – they built a big factory out in, uh, it was about Burbank area somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then it burned down and it's just a financial loss. What happened is they were underinsured and shit and they, it all went away. It's just one of those stories. Uh, but up to then, they were the guys and great guys. And my Valley Arts were, I've had six of them, five or six Valley Arts drafts in my life, I suppose. And like I say, I still had three of them when the flood happened. And two of them were so beat up finish finish wise and stuff that I just put him up for auction and it turned out a guy that I really loved as a guitar player and, and you know, and uh, ended up with him. So that's kind of interesting. Great guitars. Man. Cool. That's, that's awesome. Uh, we've got a super chat, Dave. Um, I don't know if you see it. I yeah, guess. I see it. I see it. Uh, it's from Mark. So the first thing he says is Dave, what's your favorite bottle of liquor? If this means you're going to send me one, then I'm not going to tell you right now because I'm trying to lay off <laughs> a little while. Uh, so uh, can I tell? Can I tell him what mine is? No. I'm yes, yeah, you can. Let's hear. Let's hear. What's your favorite bottle of what? And what kind of liquor is it? Well, I'll tell you what. If you were to, well, God dang, I'll tell you. Yeah. If you were to just show us. Ask me what I really love. And this is a single malt thing. This is for you and Jake, I guess, with the scotch. But there you go. This is Lagavulin single malt. Oh, this is, excellent. This is, the, this is the official mascot of my first ranch that I bought. Yeah, so this that, is my that's amazing. I, I, I'll, I've had it. It's oh, amazing. it's smoky and peaty. It is yeah. my favorite. It's yeah. my favorite. How, how, how many years is that? 25? That's no, 16 years. 16, okay. That's 16 years. Nice. But it, uh, and it's... Uh, they don't give it away yet. It's they're far more expensive, but it's a it's a great bottle. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan of uh, Belvini, double, oh, uh, and or Caribbean cask or. Well, we can always go there too, Dave. Yeah, of course. Belvini. It's beautiful. There you go. <laughs> and I, I'm a single mark guy. Now, so. Yeah, so that's great. Now with tequila, though, uh, <laughs> Don Julio, 1942. 
Ah. It's a ah. beautiful amber bottle, really tall. Unbelievable. No, and I and I bless it's you, Carmel. I'm impressed. Bless you because, you, and if you get into the great tequilas, that's a whole nother culture too. Mm-hmm. It's like I mean, and I've only, I don't know them a lot, but I've been exposed to them. People, you can get into that as far as you want to get into wines. Same with single malts. Yes, absolutely. Tequilas, same. they're they're sipping tequilas. I mean. Because we always think back at tequila in rock and roll terms, it's like get it down the hatch because I just want the results, right. you know. <laughs> right. But, but I mean, because you might not always, remember in the morning. Well, I've always said the best times of my life and the worst times of my life all involve tequila, and usually they're the same time. That's the weird thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, unfortunately, uh, tequila is uh, where you miss the whole night. Like somehow, somehow it's just like <laughs> up to a point, and then it's blank. <laughs> I was in Nashville a couple of weeks ago again, hanging with some friends there. And it's Nashville, by the way, is the most drinking town in the world. I don't care where anybody's ever been or anybody. So Nashville drinks more than any town. But anyway, yeah, that's that's the one where you've, you've had the drinks and you think I just can't go any farther. Oh yes, I can. I'll have tequila. You know, that's the one. Yeah. It's always that last one that still <laughs> has something somewhere to go. Right. I used to drink. Hey, you might be in a bar fight, but tequila's that that one. Ah, you know, so. uh, yeah. Now mezcal yeah. is is that's totally that's totally different. That's totally different. Uh, it yeah, is okay. different, but it's also good. It's a that it's a, a form. whole other culture. Yeah, of, it is. That's true. Of, of of bottles, and you can get deep into it. Yeah, that's yeah. A and Dave, there's a place there's a place in Denver that I this is a kind of a hunting connection. I've been hired by some places to go develop habitat for them and stuff. This guy owned a restaurant still there, called Mescal, but they have a tequila and Mescal bar that's extensive. It's one of the better I've ever seen. But anyway, that's one of the first places I got turned on to some of the better tequilas, you know, yeah, yeah, the yeah. high end stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, after you have the high end stuff, you can't, you can't touch anything else. Well, you don't. Unless I mean, you're you making got... it in a margarita and it just doesn't right, matter. Right. You know, well, margaritas, man. When I think of Marguerite's, I got to be honest, man. I just think of sorority parties and 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 girls, you know, right. bachelorettes. Marguerite's to me all taste about the freaking same. I guess I'll hear arguments about that, but it's like no, that's it's, it's just a freaking margarita. You know? Right, right. Yeah. It, it's the same as a pina colada, whatever. It's the same. Yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah. Yes. It's, yes. Exactly. Yeah. So to answer the rest of Mark's question, release date for the B100 Deluxe is maybe end of June. And uh, for SLO 100, I don't have an answer for you. On that it's in the works in the works yeah yeah um so i know we had a couple questions in the chat and I'll, I'll just ask you um steve have you played any of dave's stuff any of his amps guitars i have but not recently because i haven't been anywhere playing much of anything but yeah back in the day i played dave's with great amps yeah yeah and 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 dave man one thing i remember about you is you, you always had a line on all these cool other things man oh you yeah of cool little pedals and shit you were like the guy that already did the research to tell us about check yeah. this thing out. i mean i think i still got the aria right and the, oh, Noble the aria chorus or something yeah, i think yeah. i've got all that shit and and it was always great shit and it might have been the expensive shit and it might have been the 30 dollars shit and it was always the good shit yeah yeah they've always had the line on all this fucking cool stuff yeah. man. that's awesome Absolutely. Yeah, that was that was the days so did you <laughs> yeah. did you have um like the big rack back in the days well, yeah. I had all that shit. I've yeah. had everything. Yeah. So, so in Mister Mister, what was what was the equipment you were using in Mister Mister? I know you had the Bradshaw rack, right? Yeah, but what I will tell you about the Bradshaw thing is, my Bradshaw was the Brad. You know, Bradshaw wasn't 
that wasn't the sound of my rack, meaning I didn't do slaving and all that other stuff that Bob got into with Luke and the guys. Mm-hmm. I, I all, but Bob was brilliant at putting together a thing that controlled what I wanted to control. So all my amps, like if you, when I actually was cutting the record, it was one thing. I didn't have the Bradshaw when I was cutting like the Mr. Mr. Record was big, but I, but I bought one by the time we were touring for it. And then what I did is I said, I want these amps and I want to be able to channel switch these amps and I want to be able to, these effects and these digital things, you know, and it controlled everything. So my sound really was never about slaving because for me, slaving, though some people really liked it, that that was for me more like you're turning the fader up on the console that you're recording. It wasn't the sound. It didn't change the sound. Mm-hmm. And see if you, and you know this, man, if you're, if you're co- pulling up your guitar gain, pushing everything harder, it changes the tonal qualities. Yeah. So I always felt like that was a not a less musical thing for me than amps that, that worked like amps. Like if I had a volume pedal, I want that volume pedal to be sending more gain into the amp. I don't yeah. want to control the volume of the amp. Does that so, make sense? Mm-hmm. All the stuff in your rig was in front of the amps. No, it was not at all. Uh, I mean, I, a lot of it was, but but also I had I had certain delays like in effects loops and stuff. Okay. But it was but it but it wasn't the slaving thing. Does that yeah. make sense? It wasn't yeah, bass. Just amps and loops. Amps and loops. Amps loops and front end pedals. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then then great control of just getting there. You you know the hit one button and it changes five hundred things if you need to. That's what that was for me. Yeah. And and like in a Mister Mister touring. And then when I was out with Rod Stewart, it would have been the same thing because it was just a carryover of what I was doing with Mr. Mr. But I usually had four amps and I had a head rack. I had, which you probably remembered anyway, I don't know, but I'd have racks, I'd have heads in two racks. Like I'd have a, maybe it was a, I had a Fender Twin Reverb that was a later version of that, that Paul Revere, Paul Revere really gutted and, and changed. So it really wasn't even a, you know, stock amp. But I remember I had that on the Mr. Mr. Tour, the Rivera head. I had the Kelly. I didn't take the Dumble out, but I had a Marshall 50 watt. And I'm trying to think what the fourth one was that I had. But I had four amps going. And then I would have in speakers, I would have, I had four KK Audio speakers, mm-hmm. right? KK Audio, just single 12 cabinets, like two little stacks, like two little single 12 stacks. And then I had two Marshall type slant cabinets with that. And then I would put plexiglass in front of them and I have an SM57 in front of all the amps. So I, I was actually telling a guy that is not a musician, musician earlier today about just Sonics. We were doing something else unrelated. But I said, when I was playing music, I had, I would say they were 30 to 36 inches high plexiglass in front of them. So, they, so the amp sound didn't go off the stage, but I could hear it when I was standing in front of it. Yeah. You follow me? So I could hear what I needed to hear, but it wasn't doing that bullet sound directionally. Right, right, to this, yeah. to the, you, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So. But 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 I but my sound was always a little more traditional with good amps and good good uh, effects. Does that make make sense? Yeah, you know? yeah. Do you know what Marshall you were using? Yeah, I I still have it. I have a fifty watt head that I bought when I lived in Iowa City, Iowa, and I would have bought that new in seventy six maybe. Mm-hmm. And it was just a regular 50 watt head. And I sold that when I moved to California. And then I came back and I bought it from the guy I sold it from. He was a friend of mine. I bought it back from him and I took it out to LA and I had Jose. Remember the old Jose uh-huh. 
uh, Van Halen guy. I had him do something to it for a bit, but I later pulled that out. I had a little gain, a little extra gain thing, and I'm trying to think what it was. But I did use that. If you like the solo on, on uh, Mr. Mr. Is It Love, which is another solo of mine that I've always gotten some, you know, whatever feedback about recognition, but that was my Dumble with that Marshall. But both both the Dumble and the Marshall were going through old Marshall cabinets with old, uh, you know, old selections, old 25-watt selections, greenbacks, I think, you know. And that, that was how I cut that solo. Um, that Marshall is a great fucking Marshall, but like like that kind of Marshall, you got to turn them up a bit. I mean, okay. yeah, so is pretty this straight a, ahead. This is a ma- ma- non-master volume JMP, is that what it is? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I have a couple other ones. I had a hundred watt that I had Jose do his whole deal to. That was a good amp. I got rid of it years ago. I don't remember whatever why. Yeah, want to know something? Marshall Wait. that was actually the newer Marshalls that had the masters in them. I, you're gonna I, love I, this. What's that? that? You're gonna love this. That Marshall, the hundred watt, the Jose. It's sitting behind me right now. You're fucking kidding. My amp? Oh. Yeah, your amp. What? Where yeah. is it? Show me. I have okay. <laughs> how did you how did you end up with it, man? Where is it? Hang on. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's a good fucking amp. I remember that. You know, sometimes you sell amps because you Here. Oh, dang it. No shit. Was, this is it. <laughs> wow. Uh, it belongs Great. to a Japanese guy who you sold huh? it to. What's that? It belongs to uh, my Japanese distributor. That distributes my amps. He's a Jose collector, and and that's, uh, my old... and that's your old amp. Oh my god, that's fucking great, Dave. Uh, I love that. He actually said he bought it from you. When you I didn't mind have. Yeah. <laughs> I've had yeah. a couple martinis since then. I don't necessarily remember. <laughs> so, so apparently, so Steve, you I love Steve. Tell him, tell him, God bless him. I like that. So Steve sold it to the guy, to the the guy in Japan. Yeah, yeah, my uh, my yeah, our Japanese distributor Taka, he uh, he has maybe about seven of them that I've all worked on. Wow. So I don't remember even when I sold I, or the scenario, but that's that's awesome, man. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You know, I had one of, one of Soldano's first amps or early amps, I should say, one of his early amps too, and it was a great amp. I remember, and John Fogarty bought that from me. That was through Brower, of course. Ah, mm-hmm. And I think other amps are gone. The the freaking man. I almost wish I could send you this. That that double ad for that amp is crazy, man. Well, yeah. I, I gotta say, yeah, I gotta say that your Dumble was probably the only Dumble I ever heard that I liked. Well, I and I'm I not don't, a Dumble I don't, fan. I don't. I, I I get that, man. I do I, get I, that. I, the I, first I'm a Dumble fan on the clean side, but yeah. But the dirty was never really my thing. I was more Marshally guy, but yours sounded different. Harmonics that can be really good, and that's why, like on that that solo I'm talking about, is love. Like the Marshall had the fucking punch and the thing, but there was a, the harmonic sustain on the Dumbo was a thing. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that was my Dumbo. Yeah, it had its thing, man. But that's. But of course, I of course the porno helped the sound of that. You know that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's. I'll great. never forget. Yeah. The other guy, man, you know that I went through that shit with is Reinhold Bogner. You know. Yeah. Reinhold and I had sit up all night and. Oh no. Oh fuck. <laughs> oh fuck. Oh my god, I couldn't imagine. 
Oh, no. Oh, no. We'd sit up all night, and then I'd come out at sunlight. But I would make him. But I got to tell you, man, and I've told other guys this. Anybody in life, if you're particular about things, it might be music about a number of things. But I'd sit with Reinhold, and he would change a resistor in the amp that was the same value resistor, Dave. Whatever. Whatever. I don't know this shit. I don't know. I'm a guitar player. I don't ceramic know how to anything. Or something. Yeah. What's, what's that? Like ceramic versus yeah. something else. Well, no. No. No, I'm saying the same out of the same bin, the same value resistor, the same technology, the same oh, okay. freaking one. And he put him in, and I go, that one sounds better than the last one. And I look at him, and I say, I'm right, aren't I? He goes, yep. I mean, things are, I believe this, things have nuances and changes, and they might be really, really subtle, but they all add up to something. That's why I want to hear the stories about Eric Johnson saying, if you plug the cord in this way and turn around that way, it's different. I believe him. That's me. Mm -hmm. But oh, that's what I, I believe if you're that particular. Now, Lukather thinks I'm a fucking crazy son of a bitch. But that's fine. He goes, I just like to play the guitar. He goes, you like to spend all the time on the sound. I go, yeah, and I do. Whatever. But well, to but, me, but Steve, Steve barely, yeah, But Steve barely knew where to plug his cord in. <laughs> I'm not joking. Um, you know, and then he plays the shit out of it. You know, but that's, he's a different cat, you know. Mm -hmm. But for me, I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, whatever. But whenever anybody wants to start talking about whether you're crazy or not, I say, yeah, but, you know, here's what I played. And maybe I'm crazy, but you, you know what I mean? It, I think yeah. everything adds up to a, to an individual. And yeah, that's how I, that's that's how I build duck ponds now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm changing resistors on them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, you know what? I have to be while we have you, and I want to make sure that I get to this question because you you were talking about working with Kiss, and you probably have been asked this question before. But I read that Eddie Van Halen had something to do with the recommendation for Kiss or something like that. No, or, not quite. But but I know where you're going with this. Yeah. Um, okay, so after that Kiss episode, right, and then my life goes on, whatever, and Mister Mister becomes big, and we're successful. The next time I know anything about Kiss. We had Broken Music become number one, and then Kyrie was climbing the charts, and we were on the American Music Awards, which would have been, I don't know, 1986, January, February, whenever they have those, early in 1986. And I'm at the rehearsal for American Music Awards, and here's Paul Stanley, who's a presenter, and comes up and he goes, Steve, God, Gene and I are so happy for your success, blah, blah, blah. As if we were long-lost brothers, I was so like, you actually remember, remember me? <laughs> I mean, it was kind of one of those weird things but then he goes on to tell me he said yeah man we had eddie van halen down because they're buddies with eddie i guess and they played him that solo and he goes what i don't know if i have the quote exactly right what's what the fuck's wrong with this guy or why don't you hire this guy that's been the that's been the story that goes on about eddie mm. going fucking hire that guy after you heard that solo i that's that's the deal and that that little bit of information you just said comes up all the time too and Somebody recently, I mean, just a couple months ago, sends me some YouTube thing that Paul Stanley's, he's in art, I guess. And so he's, he's doing like an art seminar, standing on some stage, talking to people as they're painting behind him and stuff. And somebody asks him some question about, did Eddie Van Halen audition for Kiss? And he goes on to say, no, Eddie never auditioned for Kiss, blah, 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 blah. Eddie came in one time. Steve Ferris had played the solo, Steve, Mr. Mr., blah, blah, blah. Uh, and they said, why don't you hire that guy? That's the story. There you go. So, so do, are you are you, do you know Eddie at all or or? Well, guess... Eddie and I played together at the Nam show in well, it was early nineties. I don't remember ninety one, ninety two, something like that. 
But Ed, whenever Eddie came out with the, the 5150 amp mm. that year, because that was he was presenting that amp with PV, yeah, huh? With PV, I yeah. Would, yeah. And I had a I had sort I had sort of a deal with PV at the time, and so Randy Jackson and I and Rick Strait on keys and Jonathan Moffat on drums. Wow. Went and rehearsed over at. Uh, fuck, I'm trying to think. It might have been Leeds. I don't remember, but we were rehearsing for the NAMM show to play for PV, and Eddie was going to play. So. We rehearsed like four or five songs, and Eddie was going to come play some some songs. So Eddie and Zeke, his roadie at the time, they showed up, and we rehearsed together, which was fun as shit because Eddie played my rig, and I played his rig, and we were doing Led Zeppelin songs and stuff and just having a ball. And what I loved about Eddie back in the day, man, Eddie, Eddie walks in with a six-pack of beer in the rings, man, and one holds the ring of... Holding the, hold the ring of five, drinking the other one, uh, and Zeke carrying the guitar. That's fucking rock and roll right there, man. I love it. But anyway, we played and had a great time. Then we went down and played at the Marriott for the PV, just the PV inside stuff, and played like on the stage at the Marriott at that NAM show. And then and then Randy Jackson and I were playing that whole weekend, you know, in the booth. But, but Eddie played at that show. And I'm going to tell you, man, He's a very, very nice guy, and I, I'm sure you probably met him, Dave. Where he's extremely, oh, yeah. and, and and Eddie, I've told people this story because you know they're enamored w- with my life and they know nothing about music. So the time I played with Eddie, you know, he's great, and we played guitars together and stuff. And they introduce him, and he comes, he he makes a stage entrance, blowing that shit that he does, and smiling that big smile. And you're looking at him going. Fucking rock star right there, brother. Right. Rock fucking star right there. <laughs> Am I wrong, Dave? No, that's right. Yep. Rock fucking star. <laughs> yeah. And great. Deserving every minute of it. Just fucking great guitar player. And, you know, he, and of course, everybody's going, he wanted to play Superstition was the song he wanted to play. But not, he wanted to play the Beck Bogart Apathy. That's what he said. I want to play the Beck Bogart Apathy version of Superstition. Hmm. So he played that. And then he looks at me because everybody's going, what do we play? What do we play? And I go, Let's play Tush, ZZ Top. So you know, I played Tush, ZZ Top, and went out playing that. And I don't know, man. That's uh, I have a picture somewhere. That time. Know, that's, and I he was very. Funny. I've seen him a couple other times. And let's get together. I I'm got. I don't know. I don't always get together later, but you know, right. that was me and Eddie. That's awesome. What were you gonna say, Dave? I'm pretty sure I was there. Were you there? In the Mary? I think I was there. I do. There you go, remember, man. I do re- vaguely remember this. <laughs> there I you remember- go. That era happened, Mark. Actually happened. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. Yep, I'm pretty sure I remember that. So there's no video of it, though. Oh man, I I regret my life more now than ever because um, so many things, so many great people I got to play music with over the years, great musicians and all that. And some pictures were taken somewhere, but when you're in that deal, you you don't want to find yourself being that deal. You don't be the fan. So you get you, it's your work and you just do it and that also keeps your it keeps your head on straight to be honest with you. You just play, man. Play music. Play with great guys and try to be great and be nice and try to play, be as good as you can. Right now I'm in a different life. I live out here and I wish God, I wish I had a picture of the time I played with Carlos Santana and he was I got done playing solo and he was done doing this shit. And I'm like, Well, I wish I had a fucking picture of that right now. You know what I mean? Because like <laughs> right. it means it's a different to me. era. It was Each a different era. That, my grandkids were here and I said Hey, your grandpa played with some pretty cool people, you know. But I don't have all these pictures, man. Right. It's just the way it is. Yeah. It was a different. Uh, it was a different era. Well, you didn't have your little. You didn't have your little phone. You can film. Oh, everything. I know. Take pictures of everything. Yeah. At the See, it's all fucked. It's all immortalized now, whether you want it to be or not. Right, I mean, exactly. it's just, 
there. That's so true. I'll tell you what's interesting, though, in technology, and I say technology like this new, but just the fact that uh, YouTube's, you know, damn about and everything. Like my wife, uh, we've been married 10 years. She wasn't with me in all the rock star days, you know, all that shit. But she'll, she'll pick up something. She wants to see me play or something. She'll say, ah, Santiago Chile, Rod Stewart, 1989. Bang, it's there. It's all bootleg videos, mm -hmm. but they all exist. Yeah. And they're yeah. all on YouTube. I mean, 30, 40 years of it. I can see myself playing Moscow and Whitesnake tomorrow. You know, it's just all there. And, yeah. and that's kind of... It's kind of neat, actually. <laughs> I could go back in history, and go because we were. It's not professional stuff. It's just bootlegs, right? But they're on YouTube. So well, you just yeah. you just mentioned two other bands that I wanted to talk to you about. You know, White Snake. How did that happen? And then also Rod Stewart. If you can tell us about those. Well, Rod was before White Snake, but Rod was. Uh, you know, I left when I left Mister Mister in '88. Um, I'm not exactly sure what I was going to do. One of the first things I, that happened to me is Ricky Phillips uh, and Jonathan uh, Jonathan Kane from Journey were talking about putting. I, I knew Ricky, and they were talking about putting something together, and they knew I, they'd heard I'd left Mister Mister, and we talked about maybe putting together a group. And John Waite suddenly wanted to get involved. And anyway, there was a moment I flew up to San Francisco at SR, and we wrestled around with some songs. I, 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 I turned it down, to be honest with you. I, I, it just wasn't what I wanted to do, even though I respected the guys heavily. Well, they went on, Neil Sean came in, and they formed Bad English. Ah. But at, at that moment in time, I decided I wanted to try to get my own thing going. I just left Mr. Mr. had momentum. And so I spent 13 months listening to singers, basically. I knew a drummer and bass player I wanted to work with, and I just kept listening to singers. I'd go to my P.O. box and just get cassettes every day. I went to England for, and I auditioned guys all over England, blah, blah, blah. And I eventually did put something together. That's a whole nother story. But before that all came to fruition, I was getting calls from different people that I was turning down gigs from, name people that just, career-wise, I wasn't thinking I needed, I wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. But then Rod Stewart got Randy Phillips, uh, Randy Phillips, that's the name, yeah. Hmm. Anyway, manager calls me and says, hey, man, we met at a, Nike party, Christmas party, blah, blah, blah. Rod's still out on his tour. This would, would have been the forever young sort of era, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, he's got a lot of life in the record. We're still out, but we lost. Davey Salas was playing uh, guitar with him. He got his own deal. And um, God, it was a guitar player, man. He went on to do great things too. But anyway, the point being, they needed a guitar player to keep the tour up. And he goes, you know, we'll feature you on People Get Ready. And I kind of laughed in my head because I think, well, at least it was my guitar on People Get Ready when it was cut. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, so, you know, they offered me this gig. I thought, well, it's Rod fucking Stewart. Yeah, I'll, I'll go do that, you know. And so I took the gig with Rod. That would have been uh, spring of 89, I think. And it was a South American tour. And, you know, man, it was great. I, you know, Rod... Rod <laughs> Well, I'll tell you this. this. This sums it up for me because when I was on tour, a few guys in the band would bitch a little bit if we were staying at different hotels than Rod was. And our hotels were fine. But as they would bitch and moan that like he was staying in some place better, when, I remember, I won't name names. I remember saying to one of them, I said, what I know is Rod Stewart had Maggie May out when I was in fucking ninth grade and my checks come on time every week. <laughs> He's Rod fucking Stewart. He wants to stay where he wants to stay. You know, exactly. I mean, at a point, you got to remember, you know, right? You got to just 
They don't. It doesn't say your name on the billboard. It says Rod Stewart. That's true. So for That's me, true. with Rod, I was. I, I thought it was great. I did have. I always. I'm always careful about these situations. There was eh, some misunderstandings about what was going on in the band and who was playing what or whatever. To a point that in a few discussions, I actually bailed on the gig. Mm. I just said, you know what, I'm going to go back home and start working on my shit. I'd done most of the South American tour. And then I sat down with Rod at dinner in Mexico City, and he, he didn't know what was going on. He had great complimentary things, so he wished I was still playing guitar with him and everything. But that was fine. Great era. I was glad to have played with a, a great superstar. And I will go into Whitesnake, too, to tell you the story. But I will right now tell the, the thing that I've told to a lot of people about two times in my life that I've been on stage, that this was similar. But I'll start with Rod Stewart. But it was the same with David Coverdale in, in, in Whitesnake. Like when Rod Stewart, when I rehearsed with him, and Todd Sharp and I were playing guitars, we, we were new both at the same time. We are playing like guitars. We rehearsed at Audible Sound or wherever the hell we rehearsed. And then we go down to South America. The first date we were playing is uh, Uruguay. 70,000 people in a soccer stadium, you know, big deal. And we're playing Hot Legs to open out, you know, the intro to Hot Legs. And then Rod comes out, Versace closed, the hair sticking up, kicking a soccer ball, swinging the mic, and grabs it. And I looked at him, and all I thought in my head is like, rock fucking star right there. Right. Big time rock star. I mean, you just look at it and go, that's the big leagues. It's the Mick Jaggers, it's the David Bowies, it's the, that's mm -hmm. the big star, I think. And the other time that was like that, and I could tell you about why it's saying how it came about, but I, I felt that with a, one of the couple times I was on the first couple times on the stage with David, I got on great with David Coverdale. We were all that stuff. But when I was on stage and he, you know, these guys will rehearse, well, in the backstage with the mics and the whole thing before they got on stage, looking in the mirror and shit, which you think it might seem weird, except you realize, no, that's what they do as a job, man. Mm -hmm. They make sure they're, you know, their angles are right and their thing is right. Tina Turner does the same shit too. I was on the roof. They do the same thing every night, the same fucking point on stage. Like I play the same guitar notes at the same time. Right? Mm -hmm. Like Coverdale goes out, are you willing? Are you willing? And, and you look at him going, rock star, man. The guy you were looking for in your band all the time right. when you're in high school. Those are those cats. Right. Right. <laughs> right. That's amazing. <laughs> no, I got to play with two of them that were really died in the wool english rock stars you know yeah yeah and they're both still going i know as a matter of fact i was in nashville a couple weeks ago talking with paul uh, taylor who was from winger keyboard player a good friend of mine and rep beach has been playing white saying i heard some great stories about it but it was, i won't repeat them it's just that it's ongoing man it goes on forever the the the, the big rock dudes are still going yeah fucking eddie Bunch is still going man yeah I yeah think. he's got a reality tv show I know, I know. And if you knew Eddie, you'd love the fact that that's what he's got because that's the perfect. That's Eddie would do that, you know. It it almost <laughs> seems perfect for him because when I when I've seen oh, totally, yeah, yeah, totally. he's yeah. and he, you know, he, I feel like I have a lot in common with Eddie Money because we're both from New York. At least you know, like he's got that accent. And he's just you know, oh yeah, he's just he doesn't hold back. He just says what he feels, you know, and that whole thing. And, oh, right. And that's, what's great oh. about him. You know, he lets it fly. So having a reality show, let me tell you any money. I'll tell you one, any money story that really wasn't with me, but I ended up playing on a record for him. Year, I played on the record when I was playing with him. And then a years later, Keith Olsen hired me to play on something else for him, which was just coincidental. But, but I will say, uh, he worked with some other friends of mine 
over in the studio. This is a fair, this just, uh, this just is so typical of anybody's personality. But A's on the phone, and he was calling to order some fucking pizza somewhere. Might have been Domino's, I don't know. Right. He goes, No, I know. He was trying to get the number for Domino's. So he calls directory assistance. He goes, Yeah, yeah. Hey, this is the money man. I need Domino's pizza. <laughs> He's telling him. He's telling <laughs> directory assistance operator, this is the money man. <laughs> That's what you gotta love. The guy's living it every minute. <laughs> wow. Yeah. This is the money, man. I need Domino's Pizza's number. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, man. So how did you uh, how did you hook up with Whitesnake? How did that happen? Uh, Marco Mendoza, uh, a bass player. Um, I don't know if you ever run across him, Dave, but tremendous, tremendous yeah. bass player uh, from Mexico. Who I I don't know. I, I ended up playing things with him. He was doing the he was playing the Valley in a lot of clubs and shit. Absolute virtuoso kind of player. I don't remember why, but he was he started playing with. He was going to play with White Snake, and somehow it came about that uh, he kind of hooked me up. I had met David Cover that one time back in the day, just in rock star stuff, but didn't really know him. I don't remember, but he, he hooked it up, and I had to send a tape up to David, and I sent a tape of some stuff, some instrumental stuff I'd been doing, which was actually something I was trying to get a record deal with, and almost did in the 90s. That's another story, but I just some recent stuff I'd and he calls me up and said, "Hey man, I, let's go to dinner, dinner at Chateau Marmont." And I, that, which is not unlike the the Rod Stewart audition, even though they called me and said they hired me, he still came down and we went out drinking one night. Mm. And I know that was the real audition, if you follow me. I mean, they want to see if they can stand you in the bus, basically, right? Because everybody can fucking <laughs> you know what I mean. So, and I'm sure that was covered. Else too, he's trying to figure out he likes me. And we went out, we hung all night, and went to restaurants and hang, hung all night. And, he loved my guitar playing and hired me, and I went on and did that tour with him. It was called it was called the Last Hurrah Tour, but obviously it wasn't the Last Hurrah. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I did that tour, man, with him, and that was all. I never played with him in the states. We left and we went to uh, shit. Where did we start? We started in Japan, I think it was. But I, I was out. We did Japan. We did Great Britain a couple times. We did all the Eastern Bloc, Moscow. We did Russia. We did. Uh, uh, South America, Mexico. It was all outside the States, but that's what I did with, with uh, White Snake. So this is after their big hits yeah. is still in the night and all that stuff, right? And oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, totally after. I never played on a record with David. This was after Vi had played the tour with him before I did, then I played with him. Hmm. And after that, I, I think it was Doug Aldrich maybe played with after that. After that was Doug, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's super cool, man. I mean, you played with so many people. Um, so tell us now, so how did you get into, uh, hunting and what you're doing now? <laughs> Such a... oh. In the outdoors. That's, that's where I come from. I was, uh, I was into the wildlife and shit since I, I don't even, since I don't even remember. My dad was a hunter and a fisherman and I grew up, we lived at a cabin every summer. Well, from the time I was about seven on. And we lived at a cabin with a lake in front of us and the river behind us. That's where we moved to in the summer. And I all I lived in a pair of swimming trunks and that's and nothing on my feet. And that's I lived that way. And I caught everything that breathed. I mean, raccoons to possums to snakes to I was just that's that's where I come from. So the hunting thing has been in me from way, way back. And and I have a huge love for wildlife, conservation and things. I will say this that um and I'm very blessed about this because 
as things really change, man, and I don't care who you're talking about on guitar when you do these things. And if the rock stars, the rock stars, and the recording arts, the recording arts. But the studio shit, all that stuff, Dave knows that that doesn't exist like it did. That I mean, at all. No. I mean, this, this that world is freaking over with. Mm-hmm. And and technology changed a lot of that and whatever. But the world changes. But I'm glad I was there when that was there. What I'm going to say about my hunting thing is I didn't have any design to go do this as as a lifestyle or anything. I always say I wanted some hunting land as my Ferrari, like. You know, what, what do you want to buy? One guy wants a mansion, one guy wants whatever. And I always regretted that I never bought some land because that was my goal. We didn't own land as a kid. I didn't come from money or anything. I always looked for an opportunity to hunt or someplace to go. I thought if I ever have any money, I'm going to get a place to hunt. And I didn't get it back in the 80s, Mr. Mr. And so next time around when I could put it together, I found a piece of land. And this is significant, I think, in life. And that's why it's worth even saying on a show like this is that I found a piece of land after looking five years, that really, A, was twice as much money as I was ready to spend, as most things are. You always want something, mm-hmm. a bigger house. You, you see the house you love, and it's twice as much as you can afford. It was that land, plus uh, I'm a duck hunter, so that requires water. It had no water on it. So I partnered with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in an organization called Ducks Unlimited in the Nebraska Game and Parks. When I bought this land, and we developed the water and the wetlands on it. Plus, it was so much money that I thought, maybe I'll put together a hunting club and have some members and do things the way I think they should be ethically and this, that, and charge some money and maybe make a cash flow. Hmm. The point is, I think it was God leading me into a new phase of life that is not only how I'm going to make a living, but my creative outlet. And I think that was the biggest surprise because I think I told you guys earlier, I came from art, I came from painting and drawing, and then I got into music. And now I'm actually drawing on the earth. I actually control excavators and heavy equipment and draw with a big 60-foot boom that moves dirt, you know, 120 yards. And it's it's extremely creative, and that's what I never would have predicted about it. I wanted a toy, and it turned into a whole other thing. And that's led me into all these relationships with other people, people from business across America, uh, politicians, all kinds of different weird things. And I... When I say weird, only because it's so different than what I would have gotten out of a musician. So I'm, I think I'm, I'm very blessed in having the diversity of these experiences with all these different people, do these different things. I work with the Fish and Wildlife Service, hired me and sent me to. Yeah. So that's where I'm at now. I live, we live uh, in a, we have a hunting lodge we live in and we do. I work on a tractor every day and do all this stuff. It's it's a it's it's a different thing, but it's a it's a passionate thing, though. That's Not cool. unlike music in some ways, but that would take a long time to explain. <laughs> but you still play, though, right? I play, man. <laughs> I played my ass the other night by myself in my living room. Should have heard me. <laughs> uh, no, as a matter of fact, I had a guest here, and he said, "I've never. I want to hear you play guitar." And I pick up a guitar. I'll tell you what's amazing to me: I can still play the guitar. Well, I can still play the shit out of the guitar. I mean, that only amazes me because I don't play it that often. Mm. I can't play everything. I play. I don't. My chops aren't all. I mean, I, if a guy hired me, so let's we're doing sixteenth notes, heavy, you know, speed metal, and I'd say, yeah, well, my hands cramped before I got there. But um, <laughs> you know what I mean. Mm. But but in terms of just picking one up and playing for real, I don't know. It's just you. God blesses you with that thing, and if you, uh, it's kind of like falling off a, a bike, I guess. Like. I'll sit in with a band in Nashville and everybody goes nuts. And I mean, I know the difference of going nuts about whether they like 
who you were, what you did, or you actually played good. And I, I, I walk on stage and I go, fuck, I played. I can play that shit, right, you know? Right, right, right. So That's awesome. it's so fun. I love playing. People ask me all the time, do you miss it? That's the big question. Do you miss it? Well, the miss it is like, what? meaning what part of it? I mean, do I miss playing with the great guys? Yes. Yeah, I love playing with great musicians, and I got to play with so many great musicians. I love that thing. I love that that community and all that stuff. Yeah. But as a business, do I miss I don't know if I miss that. I mean, that's a lot of other things. You know, that's a lot of things. You know. Yeah. But play. As a matter of fact, like Gary Wright, remember Dreamweaver and all that? Yeah, yeah. Well, Gary's a good friend of mine because he hired me back in 83, and I, wor I worked with Gary forever. Oh, what Gary's doing now, but even, in, you know, he's much older and he's had a much longer career. But, you know, I, this has been a while ago, maybe seven, eight years ago, but I went to Europe with him and played some gigs with him and his old band Spooky Tooth from the 60s, right? Huh. And these are small gigs, but he has a little following, whatever, and I play it. And Tommy Brickline was playing drums, who played with Chick Corea and everybody, and he's a fantastic drummer. And Shem Shrek's playing bass, who I, I'm trying to think who Shem's playing with. He's playing with fucking the Eagles or somebody right now. I know he's good. But we were playing, they're great musicians. And I think in some ways I was playing better than ever. I think because I didn't give a shit at all. And it was so pure playing. Right. I was just fucking playing. I don't care. I'm not trying to get another gig out of it. And I'm not trying to make a hit record. I'm just fucking trying to play. I'm just playing. And fun. I do think of freedom. I, I, some of those gigs, I was like, fuck, I'm really playing good. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because you'll get into things. Otherwise, in the business, you go, I, I better make it sound like this. Or you can just start spewing yourself because you're trying to get food on the table. I, I will tell you a quote that I think you guys will appreciate. <laughs> it was spooky, too. But, but it sums up what I'm talking about. Spooky Tooth had two lead singers. They had Gary Wright and they had a, um, Mike uh, Mike Hutchison. I'm trying to think that wasn't Mike Hutchison, but it doesn't matter. But Mike was the other singer. English dude, you know, and they had all his career success back in the 60s. He's a hell of a nice guy, a good singer. But we were all doing gigs. We were in Germany one time in Hamburg. And he comes over to me at Soundcheck. He's over that side of the stage. I'm over here, drummer's between us. But he comes over and goes, English goes, Steve, the fucking guitar is really loud, mate. I go, loud? You think it's loud over there? I got to stand in front of the fucking amp. It's really fucking loud right here. I'm losing my hearing. Think of what I got to go through. And the guy, he looks at me like, and he just walks off the other side of the stage. Because every guitar player in their life has heard nothing but your fucking guitar is too loud. Right. So I like said that to him because I don't give a flying fuck. And that's the beauty of then you start playing great because you don't really care. Making sense? Yes, and I totally and I love that attitude. Yes, exactly. Like, I mean, there's a purity to it. I think it sometimes, and it might even be in the other room, man, with my martini and me just playing the guitar. I think sometimes my soul of playing, I'm really, really happy with. To the point of, I think I should probably record some shit and stuff because it just has a different emotion to it. Mm. it it's just coming from a different place than I did. 30 years ago? I don't know. Right. Nothing wrong with what I came up with 30 years ago. I'm just saying headspace is different. Right. Right. You know? yeah, you're playing. Yeah, I'm sure your playing's evolved as well. Oh, it probably has. Yeah. And, and maybe it's not as athletic as it was once, you know, for lack of better terms. Yeah. But, but it might have more meaningful yet. Right. You know? Right. Right. 
We've got a question from Deja Blue. It says, Steve, what guitars and amps and pickups are you using these days? I don't mean to disappoint you, Deja, but they are the, gu the guitars and amps that I would have been using in those days because I haven't really done anything. I will do this, though. When I say new, it goes back ways. It's something you wouldn't have known about. But I will, I will say I got really into, and this is going back to even in the 90s point. I got really into old pickups, man. Not not newer stuff. I mean, I got into looking for old PAFs, mm. real hot PAFs, ping, and I have really enjoyed them. I mean, I have three Les Pauls that all have old '50s PAFs in them, and some of those PAFs I've traded and traded until I got the ones I like because they vary like crazy. Oh, they vary like crazy. Very like crazy. When you get the good ones, there's there's a freaking musical thing about it, mm. yeah. and you know this, Dave. And it's not it, like in the 80s, like in a Mr. Mister, I had high output pickups because we wanted 13 volts going out there and fucking pushing shit. Right. And that was that's fine. That's that sound. But in the end of the day, a lot of times, even those recordings that I became known for, if you really listen to them, they get they get nasally to a certain extent. They get a little boxy. Whereas if you get those light output, high fidelity. You know, PAFs that have all that top end and bottom end, and then push them through shit like fuzz tones or whatever, and you come back and listen to the sound and record it, they're broader, they're bigger to me. Yeah. It's, a, it's a wider sound. Mm -hmm. And and I, you know, I, I've got into that. Plus the articulation on a good humbucking, the top end, there's a thing to it. And it has that little angry edge to it. It just sounds like a guy that's saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you. And <laughs> that's, that's a thing in a good PDF that is just there. I mean, ACDC, man. I mean, you listen to Angus on that freaking old 61 or whatever it was, the SG Les Paul. Yeah. Da -da -da. I mean, that's that that's that power chord sound that you go, that's really the sound we wanted. Or Eddie Van Halen when he's running that PAF through his original guitar and all those famous, all the early Van Halen stuff. That's that angry bite. It's not yeah. it's not high output. It's 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 the it's the balls from other things. But that fucking thing, it's the, it's the angry upper mid-range edge. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I know exactly what you Foreigner mean. Foreigner, too, man. Foreigner. He always had that great fucking thing, man. It wasn't really high output, uh, uh, hot-blooded. Yep. Those are the great Les Paul sounds, man, to me. Yeah. Pete Townsend, the guy who came up with the power chord, from what I know. I mean, that's still the shit to me. The way that guy would ring those chords, it's not overly overdriven. It's just the right shit. Especially, mm -hmm. especially Pete Townsend, because Pete, yeah, I mean, come on. Some of his Pete has a whole a whole rhythm style that is so different from everyone. Every oh human. yeah, totally. And 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 it's so great. And if you listen, it's like he's never playing the same thing twice either. Like in the song. No. It's 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 like well it's this way in this verse but then it kind of changes a little bit and the He's arranging change and everything else changes. It, it, like I said, I mean, well, he had a great drummer and a, and a great bass player that just laid the foundation, and it was just like he was the the kind of sloppy, cool icing on top that was just so magical. Oh, I I loved him to death, man. Man, I mean, I, underrated, I, underrated. Yeah. Oh, very. 
sort of, but then again, I know a lot of great guitar players that will also tip their hats to him knowing what they know about him because it wasn't about his lead playing. That's why they is yeah, underrated. Right. But who the fuck played a better power chord than Pete Townsend yet? I mean, and you're yeah. right. When he did, he would arrange the songs he's playing. The next verse, like you say, he'd build it and be what it needed to be on the second verse. Mm -hmm. Well, awesome, it was like man. a living, breathing organism. Yeah. It's like John Bonham's drumming. It's oh. a living, breathing, moving thing. It's not one beat through the whole song. Yes. Or, or the separate part. If you listen, there's so many different accents and so much different stuff, and it changes constantly as the song goes. They're just grooving and flowing. It's just, Dave Friedman, I couldn't agree with you more, my man, at all. And I even, in the latter part of my L.A. years and doing records and everything, I was trying to push sort of that idea of follow the singer of the song, accompaniment is what that is to me. It's accompanying where the song's going. Hey, man, Keith Moon? <laughs> I mean, the guy never, he's just fucking playing drums all over the fucking place. It was great. You know the other guy that's so underrated by certain people, and I used to get in arguments with it? Mitch Mitchell with, with, oh, yeah. with Jimmy oh, Hendrix. Oh, yeah. I've heard guys, man, I was in, I won't name names, because they're all good players and they're famous, but, you know, oh, fuck Keith Mitchell. And I said, you you don't fucking get Keith Mitchell was Sam Hendrix and Sam Grade all the time. And it's like a good jazz drummer. He changed to a swing beat for fucking two measures and then goes straight again on the next two measures. And that shit lights up all kinds of things on top. And right. that's, that is a jazz mentality. That's the, I'm following who the soloist or the singer is and making them light up. Yeah. And that's, the, that's what gets lost in pop and rock and all the, all the other music that we do where you go, okay, the beat's this and this and this. Yeah. And I, you know, I'll tell you, I, ha I I'm, again, never naming names. But I'd be in a session. One drummer used to always say, I don't, <laughs> I want to hear a click track. I don't want to hear anybody else. Mm -hmm. And I think, you arrogant motherfucker. Why would you not want to hear it? Because you're so, your beat's so fucking perfect. Why don't you listen and respond to everybody else in the room? Yeah. I mean, because that's the music I grew up on when people were listening to each other. And that was the, still to my day, at the age I am, I still listen to Henry's version of her. I mean, or, 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 or the who, I mean, going all over the place and you go, the energy, I saw the who three times, Dave, in my life. First time I was 12 years old and it was Fillmore West and oh, I was wow. on family vacation and magic bus was, in, and we were on a family vacation and they had, my parents had friends there and they had a son that was maybe 20 or 21. And he took me and my older brother to Fillmore West, who's playing and I saw I saw Magic Sam blues player play, and then the James Conn blues band, and then Townsend Moon. They come out doing their thing. Yeah. This first time I ever saw a rock show, really, and the sound, and I was oh my god! And I had an original Fillmore poster that I took and had on my bedroom wall till till my parents threw it away. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> then I saw them again in Des Moines, Iowa, when I was living in Iowa. It'd been '76 maybe, mm -hmm. and this is Moon was still alive and. And I, I have said many times to, to my dying day, they were still one of the best live rock groups that ever walked on stage. They're still good to this day. They are good now, too. But I saw them. I opened yeah. for them with Eddie Money at the Pontiac Silverdome. But it changed to Kenny playing drums. It was good, but it wasn't, it wasn't that thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. with Kenny, it was, well, it was a different thing with Kenny. It was a, you know, a different beat. Yeah. So that was that, that that was 1981 then, right? Or 82? 82. 82. 82. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I was at that show. That was my first concert. Where? 
Pontiac Silverdome. You were at the show that I played with Eddie Money? Yes. Are you fucking kidding me? No. That's two that's things my, you brought up now, man. That was my first concert. See how far we go back, Mark? Me and Dave. Wow, that's, that's really funny. We barely go back quite far. I yeah, didn't even know that. I didn't even know. Cheryl Crow told me one time she was in Mr. Mr. Show. I mean, these are funny things, man. You were? I was there in Missouri when you played. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. awesome, wow. man. Um, I know we had some questions. Yeah, there's a super chat, Mark. Yeah, I'm going to get to that. Okay. Right. Uh, if I can find it. Um, See, this is the worst thing about a martini. I want to tell you guys right now. Look at this. See that? The worst thing about them is they run out eventually. <laughs> yes. That's why you got to make enough for two. I don't know if I'm going to do that while I'm interviewing. <laughs> <laughs> You're a smart man. I always say I drink martinis with people that I really love me. Believe me, we've gone pretty far off the limb before. <laughs> I was going to say, smart man. Come on, come on. All right, so this question is from Mark again. Um, Thanks, Mark, for the super chat. Uh, he says, "Dave, would you recommend? What do you recommend me, what's for?" That? Sorry, I'm, I'm like sneezing. Cold. <coughs> um, this is for Dave. Dave, what do you recommend for a 5153, 6L6 or EL34 to complement a BE100 Deluxe? I don't really think that. I, I, you know, I think earlier you said Mark the fifty one fifty, but I, I don't really think that the fifty one fifty three complements the B deluxe at all. Okay. I think they're two, actually they're. You think they're more so similar? Than they are different. Hmm. Okay. Uh, um, although, uh, yeah, I. I, I something different. I just wouldn't recommend a <laughs> PV invective. Well, actually, it sounds pretty good. <laughs> Really? You like that? You heard that amp? I heard it when it first came out two years ago. I didn't like it. No? Uh, maybe I saw a better demo. Uh, uh, and then you also asked, how does the Butter Slacks compare to the 5150? Or the B I mean, the Butter Slacks is the heaviest amp I make. Um, personally, it's too much game. Uh, but uh, that's what he wanted. So That's what Bill wants. Uh, the, del the, the deluxe does a lot of stuff, so probably pretty well off with that when you when it comes out. Um, there was another question from um, Jim Becker, and he he wanted to know what amp did you use on Curie? Curie, yeah. Curie was uh, by the way that that's that fifty watt Marshall I talked about earlier. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think, man. We cut that. I cut that Sunset Sound Factory. And we tracked it live, which, and I think I used a lot of the actual, well, when I say a lot of stuff, we tracked live and actually go re-overdub all of it later. You know, that's just how we made records in the 80s. But I think on Curia, I used a lot of the original tracking date stuff. It was the, it was the Charvel strap, the, the Grover, the one that Grover talks about mm -hmm. off that board. And it was, I'm going to tell you, I know it was that Marshall 50 watt, and I'm trying to think if I even had any other amp summed in, but I don't think I did. Now, I will tell you that when I overdubbed to it and beefed it up and stuff, like those power chords, the other chord, I, I probably doubled that. I don't remember. It would have been the Marshall would have been part of it, and it might have been it might have been the double with it even. I don't know. I, I sort of almost don't remember that. But, you know. Okay. That's <laughs> fine. 
remember it was described all in the Marshall as the bulk of whatever was on that song. Okay. Um, There's a lot, a lot of martinis between between then and then. yeah, and there might be even another one before we end. The, you know, <laughs> um, I got to grab another drink. But it says um, from Sure Buell says Steve Ferris. First, let me say I'm a huge fan. Your guitar part uh, and Mister Mister were so inspired. So my question: Do you try? Uh, have you tried Modelers, a Kemper, a Helix, Axe Effects, and do you use one? Thanks. And I will be right back while you're answering that. Well, my answer to that is, um, thank you, first of all. I'm glad you're a fan. Thanks for all that. Yeah, uh, and in terms of modelers, I I am so not up to speed on anything, i got to be honest. I, uh, I'm doing, my life is a little different now. I have an amp in the other room, which is actually a PV 50-watt, uh, classic 50 and it was a it was a prototype they gave me early on, which I think is better than anything they ever produced. It was a pretty good freaking amp, and I've got a little pedal board with maybe even some of the pedals that Dave recommended back in the day. And I go in there and play a little bit. I I still own a lot of my stuff, but I'm not doing a whole lot of stuff. I played through Modelers, man. I'm not up to speed on them. I will say that I've gotten in studios in Nashville in the last several years. You know, friends or whatever that I'm in, and they'll have something there that they're running. And I'll fuck around with them, but I haven't really put it to my test yet, so I, I don't have a lot of I really don't have a lot of feedback for you. I will say this that early on in the modeling thing, back from the early line six days or whatever, that I, what I have noticed, I, and I'd be curious what you think about this, Dave. But if you go on and start doing tracks, and you do one track, and then you start overdubbing and overdubbing, they seem to disappear on top of each other. I don't know what I mean by that, but when the air hasn't been pushed and recorded, there's something synthetic that you don't hear immediately. This may be voodoo, but this is the way I hear it. Like when I'm starting to go, what the fuck? How come that isn't sounding that way? And then I went in, and I'll say this to this point, because I did, okay, this is actually worth worth saying. But a few years ago, Pat Masolato, who was the drummer of Mr. Mystery, emailed me and said he's been working for uh, an Italian artist, uh, Gosh, I guess the martini is making me not think of uh, my guy right now, a guy I really liked. But anyway, um, an Italian artist that he's been doing for records who always said, Will you play guitar for me on this next record? Which I did. He said, Sure. And what I did is I called Paul Devillier, who was the co producer of the Big Mr. Mr. Records and the engineer. And it turns out I heard he was living in Colorado and I live in Nebraska and it wouldn't have been a, been a quick, quick drive. Well, he wasn't in Colorado because he owns another place up in British Columbia. But I flew up there, and Davillier and I got together. This is, you know, 25 years after doing after I worked with him since. And he and I sat there, and he had all these old amps because he's a guitar player too, down in his basement studio. And he had old, he had Fairchilds, and he had the old AMS shit, and he had all the old mics, and he had Marshalls, and we had this amp and that amp, and it was like it, it was. He and I had so much fun for five days recording amps. More so than I had done even in the latter part of the studio stuff I'd done in L.A. It was so much like the old days of the old vintage shit and sounding like it. It was inspiring. We didn't give a shit because the clock's not ticking on the studio. We don't give a fuck. We aren't making any money on this anyway. And we sat there and made this. uh, um, uh, uh, We made this recording. And I, I said to Paul, and he and I would sit outside and take breaks. And I'd smoke a cigar and talk about God damn, this is about like, it felt like in the 80s. And the sounds were like that too. And I was remembering 
Jesus Christ, these sounds really speak. They're really amps, and they're really recording instead of trying to get by with everything on your Mac that's already in all the sounds you have. Does that make sense to anybody? Mm-hmm. I mean, that it was just, shit, this stuff's breathing differently. Yeah. It's not economical, which is where it all goes eventually. How economical can we be about everything we do artistically? And that's what I I found myself having the most fun in those four or five days that I've had in twenty years of playing guitar. Well, you know, where 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 it loses me is when people are going into a studio or recording an album and they're using uh, these modelers. And, and I'm like, why? I mean, you can use use the real stuff. I mean, just you 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 got an amp that's model a plexi model. Okay, get your hands on something. Get your hands on some real amps and put them down. I, just, I mean, I, I, it's it's. I don't see if you're going in to do it for real. Use the real shit, Dave. I I you know, obviously I agree with you totally. Here's the thing that I think I, I'm like I listen. To, Hey, let's get a plexi model. Well, why don't you use a fucking plexi? Well, for some people, it's an economical thing. They don't have the money, so they're doing a lot of. Th- I mean, unknown, you know, none of the budget. Well, so you get okay. a thing, and you can record your demos and do all this. I get that, but if you're doing a fucking record, yeah, you're gonna get the shit that's great and record that shit. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's, what that's me. That's the way I live my life. That's the way I run my hunting place. That's the way I run everything. Because- get the best shit you can get. You know, you can't top a, an old copper top AC30 with, you know, a Strat or a Tele or, or, or whatever guitar you're plugging into it. it. You know, for that jangly, petty-ish sort of stuff, it's just like, you can't do that with a modeler. You just can't. No, just, you can't. I wouldn't agree with you. Maybe you can do higher gain stuff and this and that, but that in-between stuff especially, it's hard. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, and it doesn't translate. Don't use it on your record. Please. Hey, Dave. You said exactly what I'm talking about. It doesn't translate, and that's what you—that's what you show up when you start overdubbing on top of each other. You start real, and they—and they start yeah. going away. Mm-hmm. They yeah. start disappearing. You're trying to mix them like I can't hear this guitar over that guitar, even though I turn it up. They start disappearing because yeah. there's something fake about it. And don't ask me what that is. I'm just a guy that plays. No, your your make, opinion is 100 percent because we—we've talked about this before, many times. Yeah, it—it it, doesn't—it doesn't translate very well in a recording. I'm not saying that you know a modeler can't be a useful tool, and no. people that need to travel light and and they're doing these pop gigs and this and that and okay, well, doesn't really matter. Yeah. Uh, but man, recording, please just use real stuff. Use use try to use older guitars. Try you know just. But the uh, other thing, the other thing about it, get too. your hands on it somehow, or find the producer or studio that already owns the gear that you can use when you go in. And I agree with you, but and the other thing to keep reiterating, but amps, real amps, and real gear, real good guitars and real amps, they're fucking musical in your hands. Mm-hmm. I mean, to listen to somebody play a Steinway, Mosdorf or whatever, a piano player, you go, or or a cheap piece of shit. Mm-hmm. Well, I might even listen to it in some way, but the guy playing it will tell you every time give me the fucking good piano because he's feeling it in what it's doing in his hands. And that's what I don't feel in the modeling stuff. I go like, it ain't fucking pushing the air. It ain't doing things when I'm dynamically pushing things on it. 
Because my thing, and I was always, I, I believe I'm always a very dynamic player. Instruments are really loud, you're really cold. That's just something I tried to accomplish all the time. Mm-hmm. And I can't get that out of that kind of shit. I'm like, I want to go to the gas and it ain't there. And I feel that in modeling, I always go, it's great, except it's not real. And it sounds like, it sounds like a recording of a guitar sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah it, to me, like the way I describe it is it's 2D versus 3D. That's... Well, it's like you started bringing up with p- uh, piano or something, right? So mm-hmm. uh, when I I was in uh, um, Germany with this guitar player friend of mine, and we were doing something at uh, uh, Toman, a big retailer in Germany. And uh, they had a room that was locked up that had a bunch of these pianos. <laughs> in it. And, and my friend, who actually I didn't know played piano, said, you know, asked them to open it up and could I could I play them? And I'm like... I'm like, you play? Oh, okay. And um, so I went in there with him, and these are all restored Steinways from 1909 and 1910. Oh, like, like, there's probably seven pianos in the room, and they were all of early 1900s vintage, fully restored. So they look brand new, you know, just beautiful. And he went around to each piano playing the same sort of passage, you know, and the tone difference between all of those pianos was I was just sitting there going, Oh I never I never was around that many at one time to be able to compare. Sure. Right. And when you heard the differences, it's like, ooh, this one's really chimey and punchy. And this one is like soft and subdued and like warm sounding. And it was it was it blew my mind. I, I was just like, wow. How cool! And then you know that's the same you know. in everything, guitars yeah. and amps and everything. Guitars particularly. So, so and, if you took the same thing and you had a, a nice weighted keyboard that was playing a plug-in, it's not going to sound like Steinway. No, no. I mean, never does, will. It, does it mimic it reasonably well? Yes, but will it feel like that when he plays it? Will it no. really kind of resonate like that with the same weight? No. Yeah, yeah. See, man, for guitar, guitar for me. Where I got, where I have gotten to with guitar, I mean, it's a very powerful freaking tool, man. It's in my hands, and I can make it do shit that can can get an energy out, like guitar players can. Mm-hmm. It, you want it to be able to respond and go to the. By that token, by the way, that's why I was never big on a lot of compression, because I'm saying I don't need anybody to make me not be loud when I want to be loud. Right. right <laughs> I understand right. why I would use compression in recording. I, I, I'm, I'm, but at the same time, I'm like, don't over fucking press me. I wanted, I wanted that to be louder than the thing I played before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to be able to do that. And in modeling, it's just getting what you're talking about. It doesn't go to those dynamic levels where you go, I want to, I want to kill some motherfucker right now with his next note, and I want to back him off and suck him back in so they feel like their breath has been brought back to me at that point. Mm-hmm. And that's when you get away from that and those modeling things, I think. But, no, that's great. That's awesome. By the way, uh, Harmon Acaster, uh, thanks for that. Yeah, thanks for the contribution, the super chat. They said, I was at the Silver Dome show too. The Clash followed Eddie Money. That's exactly right. And they were not really appreciated by the crowd who almost violently wanted the Who. (laughs) You were there, Dave, man. I remember. I just remember remember distinctly. There's one point in this I remember distinctly with the Who. And that was 
uh, I think uh, Baba O'Reilly, you know, that line where he yells out, they're all wasted or whatever. And then yeah. it's, duh, duh. So he yells that out and pauses for a minute. And then the band comes in and gah, gah. the power of that in, you know, in that huge, massive stadium was mind blowing. Mm. It was just like rock star. There we oh, go. Yeah. Done. Unbelievable. Totally. I was on the side of the stage up by, I was by Pete Townsend's amp when that happened. I stood, I stood over by his amp, watched all the list, the, the song list and the whole thing. And even in the song list, it's talking about band-aids and stuff like that. This road he had to bring to him because he's always ripping up his hands. Yeah. Big windmills. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Funny. One time he put his, later on in life, he put his tremolo arm through his hand. He did? Yeah, like later on when he was playing the Red Strats that he that he was playing yeah. for Molly in later years. Yeah, he did a little windmill and the arm caught right in the hand and went right through it. Oh, <laughs> I love that How even more. That? Yeah, see, I love that. <clears throat> My hero. That's awesome. Um, we we had a couple more questions and I know we're we're getting kind of late, um, so I wanted to uh, make sure we get a couple questions for you. Uh, also. Um, Let's see, where was it? I had another question. Oh, um, question from Tony Kennedy said, what amps did you use on Go On as your tones seemed different from the first two Mr. Mr. albums? It was grittier, he said. Grittier in, on the first two or, or on the latter two? Curious, but that's just curious. I, I use a lot of the same amps, really. I probably didn't use the Dumble on Go On as much. I used... The Marshall. I'm trying to think what I used on that. Um, I would have owned the I I owned that twin reverb that Paul Rivera had rewacked for me. I remember using that on a couple things. That Marshall certainly. I'm trying to think if there was anything really added to that's so different. I did use a champ amp, a little super champ, on the solo in the tube on the song called The Tube, which it was it was just a funny little small sounding amp, lots of great gain, a little grit. But no real bottom end, but real hot, hot mid-range. Um, I used a Steinberger guitar and, and, a, and a Super Champ on that solo. Nice. Um, I, I, was, I, I will remember all the solo on uh, Man of a Thousand Dances. I think I used that twin reverb in conjunction with my Marshall, I think. I don't know, man. I, I mixed them up. You know, it, it wasn't, There wasn't a lot of new amps in, on that album compared to the other album. Okay. Uh, I will tell you. I will tell your listener, your uh, guy, this that you know that amp, that album was recorded at the Village um, when they just got an SSL board that I hated. I don't hate the Village, but I hated that. <laughs> and and I, and that was a big point of contention on the whole album. And I had uh, Kevin Killen, who was engineering it. We would run my guitar through all kinds of shit at his end to try to warm the sound up back to like it sounded like to me when I was listening to my amps. Mm. I mean, everything through that fucking board sounded like shit to me. I don't care. It did. And it was just lifeless. And we were trying to warm it up with Fairchilds and different things. Cause I was, I was like, why does all this stuff sound like shit? And I was arguing with the guys in the band because they weren't feeling the same thing. But me as a freaky guitar player, perfectionist about tone, I could say, what the fuck's with my guitar sound? Walk out here. It doesn't sound like that. Mm. And that was the entire album. So when you listen to the Go On album, there's a lot of that about that album. I don't think the playing was bad. I think we covered some good stuff. But the sonics of that album were totally different. 
and it was a different engineer who wasn't as punchy. I think Kevin's brilliant. He had done Rattle and Hum, and he had done Peter Gabriel So, and all that stuff, but it was a high-fi sort of thing. Mids and punch weren't in it the same way. So some of what this guy might your guy might be hearing it might have even been that, you know. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Um, and the last question from Tony wanted to know if you um, were ever into Alan Murphy. Uh, oh yeah, uh, he played for Kate I, I, Kate Bush and stuff. Yeah. He said he sees some similarities with your playing. So yeah, he's you want he isn't the first to say that. Back in those days, I was compared with Alan quite a bit. I think about vibrato bar stuff. Mm -hmm. I think that was a lot of, like, Alan was the English guy that was doing all this. Oh, shit, he was a Go West. Right, uh, level, level 42. Level 42. Oh. Uh, he was doing a lot of things. I never met Alan. He was a great guitar player. Died early on. Mm. Um, left us early on, but a great player. And I, I heard that a lot, especially by English people that said, you're kind of the American Alan Murphy. You know, and the Americans like, you're kind of the, you know, or Alan would be the English Seafair. I don't know. There was, I think it was the vibrato bar stuff. Interesting. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so you you appear to you like the Floyd Rose over the regular trim? Is that not no, not necessarily. No, no. Okay. I, 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 you know, I learned how to play vibrato bar on a regular vibrato because the Floyd Rose didn't exist. I was doing. I would. Jeff, I listened to Jeff Beck and uh, who was the great vibrato bar guy. Hey man, Richie Blackmore and Deep Purple was a great vibrato bar guy. Mm. Um, you know, and then of course there was um, Hendrix was a great vibrato bar, but I don't think of him like that. I think of Beck as a really good vibrato bar guy. Um, so I was I was on my like fifty nine Strat doing that stuff. But of course you'd do a dive bomb or something like that. And the first thing you did before you played another note is you bent your G string, your B string, and your E string back into tune, and then you play something because those would always stick. Even though yeah, I had worked on them, that was just the that was just the, the way you played them. But then when Floyd Rose came about, uh, the first one I ever owned was on the on the uh, Valley Arts, and of course, then it's foolproof. You could drop the string so they're hanging off the neck, and they come back. You know, mm -hmm. so I, it's not that I have a preference of one over the other. It's just uh, one's bulletproof for doing crazy stuff. Yeah, that's the floor. Yeah. The other the other one you got to fuck with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, here's sure. here's an interesting comment. Original ones, it's it's there. It's nice. Yeah. What was that, Dave? No, I said there's a sweetness about a standard vibrato bar. It's a sweeter yeah, thing yeah, for yeah. some of the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is an interesting comment from Dan Pfeiffer. He says, uh, "I way prefer Buddy Miles to Mitch Mitchell." And. Man, I this, so did. This Dan, this Dan Pfeiffer, I know, right? Is it? Do you know? No, Dan. I think I might know Dan. Okay. I wait for Mitch Mitchell. I think I might know Dan actually. But Mitch Mitchell, I wait. say he prefers Mitch to Buddy Miles. He prefers Buddy Miles over over Mitch. He, that would be the difference between him and me. Yeah, <laughs> and me too. I prefer I prefer Mitch Mitchell over Buddy Miles as well. Yeah. No. No question. I would agree. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, machine gun is cool, you know, it's it but I I actually think it would have sounded it's not the musicality. It's not the musicality of Mitch Mitchell, in my opinion. That's my opinion. Yeah. Mitch Mitchell. I had a drummer uh in a in a band I had after this would have been nineteen ninety three, ninety-four. I put together a band with a guy named Julian Raymond, who was a producer at Hollywood Records, and he and I were writing stuff, doing some cool stuff together. And our drummer, Andy, was 
somebody he'd found who was never did anything bigger professional. I don't, I can't remember where he found Andy, but Andy reminded me of Mitch Mitchell. He was free flowing. And some of the greatest guitar stuff I've ever done was in the band. We called it On Golden Blonde. <laughs> I think we actually had it out on, you could buy it online or something for a while. It doesn't matter. But I was really into, this would have been, I actually bought a different Plexi uh, Marshall at that point. I was doing Big Muffs and and uh, Fuzz Faces and, uh, you know, Tiger Bray Octavia and all that shit through that. And Vox Wawa and stuff, all that retro stuff. And I still think that's some of the best guitar shit I ever played in my career. Nobody's ever heard it. Is that but ever we gonna, had that kind of. Will that be re-released? I don't know, man. I'd have to find out how to even release. I probably should. I still think it's some of the best shit I ever played. Huh. Some of the biggest, fattest fucking guitar sounds. And and uh, mono. And it was just fucking massive, man. Dave, you'd have loved it, man. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and Andy would play drums. But it had that Mitch Mitch. It just kind of floated and made everything sound good, man. It wasn't about, oh, here's the beat and here's just the beat, which is appropriate in a lot of things. But in that other stuff of, of feeling wild rebellion, it's nice to have a rebellious drummer to fucking flowing to and going ape shit like Keith Moon, like Mitch Mitchell. You know? Yeah. That, that, you know who plays like that, man, in terms of the big name guys that have played big jazz? It's just Dave Weckl, man. Yeah. I played with Weckl on a few, man, and that motherfucker will play that shit like that. You know, he'll, he'll play jazz. It'll be so complicated in the Vinnie Kelly. You, just, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He'll live up to all that stuff. Then you'll sit there and play a fucking Hendrix tune or something. Like, yeah, man, that's that shit, too. You know what I mean? He's, yeah. a, he's a monster player. Monster. Total monster. Yeah. I played with him at the Baked Potato on a few gigs with David Garfield. And I, Wacko, I love fucking Wacko. It's great. Wow. Yeah, that's just that's that's cool. a dream, dream come true playing play with people like that. Um. I've gone through. Uh-huh. I've gone through the questions. I think we've uh, exhausted the questions. Dave, did you happen yeah. to see anything else? Uh, I, I think. I mean, we might have missed something, but I mean, I think it's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, we two and a half hours so far. So is it two and a half hours? Yeah. Yeah, it goes quick. That's that's why. That's how we can do four hour shows. It goes really fast. Okay, I got you. Now. It didn't feel like it, so that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, that's awesome, and Steve, thank you so much for joining us and coming on the show yeah, man. it's awesome to get to know you and uh learn about your career and what you're doing now and all the uh great stuff you're doing with land and and hunting and, and that's just awesome um so um Thanks, our next guest guys is going to be on may 10th and that's with mike tempesta from evh jackson and charvel um artist relations so he he'll be joining us and we've got a bunch of other guests lined up but um i, I just want to thank you steve for for coming on man yeah yeah thanks. thank yeah, thank you man, i appreciate it contacting me it's great man good to talk yeah. to you again dave you know yeah man i could say, relive some of these it's kind of fun when you talk about this old shit it's just kind of like it's a fun journey man yeah you know? yeah that's absolutely. awesome that's awesome absolutely all right well hang on one second guys have a great weekend um steve i'm just gonna hang up and then we'll say our goodbyes afterward okay um okay man all right guys everybody yes everybody have a great weekend